from the halls of assembly, you'll hear us scream and shout. Our love of Indiana is manic and devout. Everything I do, we discuss in unique manner. We won't be satisfied until we hang another banner. Us two goofy guys go by names of Ward and Eric. And as you probably know by now, we're Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Hello, Eric. Hello, Ward. How excited are you that Billy Joel is releasing new music? I mean, that's the big news of the week. <laughs> the big news of the year. I mean, it is the biggest news of 2024, clearly. Yeah. Billy Joel on February 1st will be releasing his first new song in 17 years. He released like an old-timey ballad called All My Life like 17 years ago. But it's really his first hop song since 1993. So it's been 31 years that a fan like me has been just waiting for a moment like this. It's incredible. It's like Billy has been wandering around in the wilderness as long as Indiana basketball. Like, exactly. Like, okay, 93, I think we all say, well, that was the end of the golden era. We had 2002, we had 2012-13. But really, it, it we've, been, we've been waiting for greatness to return both from IU and from Billy. It's such a good point. You could look at 72, 73 to 93 was Bob Knight's heyday where Indiana became the program of college basketball. Three national championships, you know, 11 Big Ten titles. I mean, just insane success. Also the same time that Billy Joel was just rocking it with album <laughs> after album during that time. So I am extremely excited for that. Definitely puts me in a good mood. Almost as good of a mood. I was trying, <laughs> trying to tee something up for you to then tee it back to me. Well, all I was going to say is that you should say that we are. Powered by? I don't know. I don't know what that was. I don't know what that was. It was neither here nor there. It was neither here nor there. Communitycars.com, baby. There was uh, a nice moment of you trying to figure out what it was like. The tension was building the drama. And then it was just just really kind of like a wet fart. But I will say community cars. I'm still thinking about our adventures back in Indiana, the way Evan hooked us up with one of their beautiful vehicles, kept our butts nice and warm, kept us safely on the road. And this really is the time of the year you don't want to mess around with your vehicle. If you got a clunker, if it's not being reliable, you don't want to be stuck out there. You don't want to wait for AAA. You don't want to wait for your relatives who don't care that much about you to come get you at the side of the road. Get down to community cars. Make sure you're in a reliable vehicle that you can afford. Um, and, you know, it'll be a pleasurable process on top of that. Yeah, and that's the key, a car that you can afford, that you're comfortable affording, and that's what's great about community cars. They have a car for every budget. So you go to them and say, listen, I only want to pay 300 bucks a month. They're going to find you the best possible car and work with you to get you a car that fits that budget. And if you say, I'm looking for something luxury, I'm going to splurge a little bit, they go all the way up too. So that's what's great about them. They make it really easy, whether you want to do it online or on the phone or whatever. But the key really is that they'll work with you to find the car that's right for your budget. Communitycars.com. All right. Let's do a quick tour around IU athletics and what's going on. The IU women's basketball team, obviously coming off of the loss at Iowa, which was heartbreaking. 
uh, smoked Minnesota at home, just absolutely smoked them, but then had to go on the road to Turdue, which is always a difficult environment to play. It's like the biggest game of the year for them. They had the place nearly packed. They've gotten better over the, the last few years where we've just been dog walking them. Uh, and Sydney Parrish goes down with an injury. Mm. Now, we have not heard yet today, although the, the reports were supposed to come out today, on how bad the injury is. She was in the dreaded IU boot. And on crutches, she did make the trip, which I think is a good sign. And even being shorthanded, they just fought like hell. And they hit 15 three-pointers. Oh, sorry, 14 three-pointers without, oh, no. 15 three-pointers. I think they hit 15 without Sydney, who's like the second best three-point shooter on the team. I mean, it's, it's incredible. It really, it really is. And you just think, well, when you have that many good players and one goes down, that's why you see, I think, a lot of the top programs, which includes the IU women's team, uh, but either in women's or men, like any one injury, even to a key starter, it it doesn't derail your season. It doesn't take you off this precipice that you can't recover from and it's a tribute both to the rest of the team for stepping up and for coach Morin for building that team in a way that it can withstand this and hopefully sit is back if not before certainly by tournament time because to make that deep run we were all hoping for man we we really want her but especially I think you know when, when we were in Iowa and Sarah wasn't able to get going it's like oh no when Sarah gets going when when they're all clicking it is it is a thing to behold. I, I, I mean, just to see that many three pointers in any game is it's beautiful, and I wish we saw it more from the men's team. You know, Ward, they have Yarden, Chloe, Sarah, and Sydney are all shooting forty percent or higher, basically from three. Four of their starters surrounding mackenzie holmes who doesn't miss when she's down low i mean it's just a great formula that terry and terry made the decision to build that formula two years ago when she realized we don't have enough shooting and then she went out and got yarden and then they went into the transfer portal and they got sydney back from oregon and they, they got, got sarah scallion yeah. Yeah. yeah and i gotta tell you i was thinking about this watching it. sarah hit six threes in that game against <laughs> purdue and i was thinking steve alford when we were kids, when he shot the ball, every single time you thought it was going in, no mm -hmm. doubt, right? Yep. It was surprising when it didn't. Calbert Cheney, same exact thing. When he shot the ball, you thought it was going in. Jordan Holes, when he shot a three, you thought it was going in. Sarah Scalia is that for me. I would also, uh, senior year Yogi. Yeah, fair enough. Senior year Yogi. Yep, every time he shot it, you just thought, well, it's going to be something went wrong if he doesn't make it. He must have been fouled. But your um, point remains. She has joined really incredible company. And <laughs> if you um, – I think at this point, the word's been out for a couple of seasons. Um, but I know sometimes people still bitch and moan about even, even with some of the ladies' games being on Peacock now or whatever – but guys, you can always just cancel it again after the game. That's what I do. Or I just subscribe to Apple just to watch Killers the Flower Moon last night. Then I unsubscribe. Thank same thing with Big Ten Plus. That's over now for the season, but just just go ahead and especially if you are watching the men's games, counterbalance that and watch the women's games and just really feel good about the state of basketball in Bloomington.
And I also have to say this, like I could go on a whole rant on why it's good that they're on Peacock and all that. I'm not going to do that except to say this. You don't have to worry about them scheduling one game that starts at eight and the next game starts at nine 15 and you're <laughs> waiting for your game to start. And the game before it has 14 minutes left yeah. and you're like, Oh God, do, what app do I have to download? What is it on the Ocho? Do I get the Ocho? Like, do I have to stream it from my phone? Ward, you and I have done this at my house. Yeah where we don't know how to get the game. We're, we're huddled on my couch outside around an iPhone watching a game because <laughs> we can't figure out how to get on TV. On the streamers, you don't have to worry about that. The game starts when the game's supposed to start. It has its own feed. You see it it's in, in its entirety. Now, will the score on the graphics be wrong more often than not? <laughs> yeah. Sure. Sure. Okay. All right, so that's women's basketball. Football chugging along. Spring practice coming up not too far from now. Uh, obviously a ton of excitement around football. Volleyball has brought in some transfers and retained some people. And it's really looking like next year could be the get over the hump year. Steve aired with a brand new extended contract. So a ton of excitement around IU athletics. Before we do a quick tour and an update on where we are with IU men's basketball, we do want to introduce the second part of a four-part series that we're doing with IU Ventures our partner from last season that we love. They are the only entity at Indiana University that's actually writing checks to IU entrepreneurs to support their business. These are founders of companies that run the gamut of, of various industries. It's an amazing organization, IU Ventures, and we're highlighting one company a month that IU Ventures has been involved in that has a founder or a CEO or the entrepreneur who created it or developed the IP behind it has IU blood. So let's get to our second part right now. Well, if you've been listening to our show, you know that IU Ventures is a treasured partner of ours. And we started a new series last month where once a month we feature a founder or instrumental person at a company that IU Ventures has been involved in. And we've done one. We are proud to be doing another. Joining us today is an IU alumnus, 2012. He is the founder of the company Mentor Collective, which we will dive into. But it is an incredible company that is really dedicated to attacking a, a real crisis that's been happening across the country, where specifically students have trouble making the transition from high school to college from transferring from college to college and just really attacking the problem of young people dealing with all the stress and issues that they deal with, with a really innovative program. His company is dedicated to it. They are the leader in this field. It's an innovative company. We couldn't be prouder to have him as our guest. Please welcome Jackson Boyer. Eric Ward, thank you for having me. Thank you for joining. So let's start with this. How did you arrive at Indiana University? Sure. Uh, so I am not native Indiana. I'm one of those New Jersey kids that started coming uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, but I, I applied to Indiana because I had this incredible experience in high school of living in China, in Beijing. I had a host family that didn't speak any English. I didn't speak any Chinese. And I had a Chinese teacher who got her master's degree at IU. And I'll, I'll reference back to this year in China because it was the start of a certain trajectory for me as an entrepreneur. Uh, but 
maybe a lesser known fact is that IU Bloomington has incredible foreign language pedagogy. So I applied to IU knowing I wanted to study Mandarin after living in China during high school. And uh, my first week or two on campus, I read in the IDS that there was this flagship program, which is the State Department basically throwing money at IU because they're so good at teaching languages. And through the course of my time at IU, I, I basically got military grade fluent in Mandarin Chinese. And wow. there are a few co colleges in the world that could offer you that type of experience. So it was China initially, of all places, despite growing up on the coasts, and uh, couldn't have been happier at IU. So Jackson, <clears throat> excuse me, how do you say Indiana University is the greatest place on earth in Mandarin? Uh, Indiana Beautiful in any language. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So your time at Indiana, you were there from 2008 to 2012. That happens to coincide with something pretty monumental happening on the Indiana basketball side of things, specifically the watch shot. Yes. Do you have a connection to the watch shot? I, I do. I was in the building. Wow. And I, I feel like we need some context because... Okay. I, I sort of stumbled into Indiana because of this China connection. And it does relate to Mentor Collective. I don't want to kind of like close that loop. A lot of my friends at IU, because I spoke fluent Mandarin, were Chinese international students. And none of them had ever gone to an IU basketball game. And these were kids who loved Dwayne Wade. And at the time, like our head coach had coached Dwayne Wade at Marquette. And like yes. that connection was non-existent. There's... If you've been to China, you know China is obsessed with the NBA, yet these international students were not going to IU basketball games. So I'll, I'll come back to this when we talk about my company, but like that disconnect of this incredible aspect in the IU culture, not being a part of their college experience was one of the reasons I, I went on to found Mentor Collective. But I, I fell in love with IU basketball as an outsider. I didn't grow up in Indiana, so I didn't know what it meant to the culture, but you can feel it in the building. And I definitely remember that day because we kind of sucked my entire time at IU. I knew about the past and how great we had been, but I didn't see us winning. And I think my freshman year, I got season tickets and we won five games. Right. So uh, I think we like beat Minnesota. It was like the only win in, in the Big Ten Yep. Uh, that year. And so the fact that we were playing number one, Kentucky, we hadn't lost yet that year. Just like I read every article leading up to the game. I had season tickets. It wasn't, you know, it was like up in the bleachers, but uh, it was just the most, I think, cortisol I've ever had in my body just watching <laughs> that game because it's so back and forth. Uh, and when the shot went off, I had a bad angle, so I didn't quite see it go in, but like the entire place erupted. And so I just remember like hugging everybody next to me for a good like two minutes. It just, I blacked out and then I blacked in and we were just partying for like the next 24 hours. Incredible. All right. So walk us through how your experience at Indiana, graduating Indiana, ultimately leads to the forming of Mentor Collective. So this, this thing I reflected on when I graduated from IU was how as the, the one student who spoke Mandarin, I was able to befriend Chinese international students and sort of serve as this bridge into the culture. And uh, 
I think college is one of the few times in life when people from different backgrounds get to connect because you have this diversity on campus. And then after you graduate, you kind of like go back into your own communities. Yeah. So literally at the time, I thought Chinese students going to IU basketball games was like a deterrent against World War Three. And like <laughs> 15 years later, I'm, I'm not so sure I was wrong. Like right. that's important. These, we need to connect with each other. And so I started a job in consulting, totally unrelated work, but kept reflecting on being a bridge for these students. And Vendor Collective started as a pro bono side project. Like I thought I was going to go to grad school. I needed to do something I was passionate about. And that thing was helping international students connect with Americans as they were going to college. And a couple of the schools we were working with said, this is great. Like we'll actually pay you to do it for us full time. Mm -hmm. uh, and you should do it not just for international students, you should do it for everyone, do it for low income students. Eric, we talked about student athletes, like who doesn't need a mentor when they're 18, 19 years old going to college. Some of the kids going to college are not kids, they're adults, they have full time jobs and they're going back to college after you know dropping out 20 years ago. So there is a dropout crisis in our country and mentors can make all the difference in, in graduating and people who graduate make more money. They're happier. There's a lot of reasons to go to college. And so we, we sort of discovered this amazing opportunity to create impact and also build a business. And then in the growth of this business, where does the wonderful folks at IU Ventures come into the picture? Yeah, so we, we kind of bootstrapped for a long period of time. And, and that means you know, not taking too much funding, being really focused on sustainable growth. Uh, but IU Ventures came in at that moment of inflection. So IU had actually been a customer for two or three years. I was thinking about fundraising uh, and saw like a press release that IU Ventures existed, which first off is awesome. I think most colleges don't have what we have at IU. Uh, and then it was honestly a pretty simple conversation. I said, hey, IU's paying us every year for this product. You're investing in IU alums. Like we should figure something out. <laughs> and it, it was... Uh, pretty seamless. Like the investment committee was super supportive and then post-investment, just amazing. Uh, they connected me with other schools in the region, Butler, even Purdue, you know, these are customers for us and we'll do business. We'll take their money. We'll be happy there. Right. Right. Um, sure. And give them the bad mentors. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, they have only mentors from Purdue, so they have to be bad mentors. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, so if you could, and I know it's difficult because I've done a lot of reading on Mentor Collective and you do a lot, but give us the the mission statement of, of the company and kind of where your focus is right now. Yeah, so in a nutshell, people who graduate college make over a million dollars more in lifetime income than people who don't. But 40% of people who start college will not finish six years later. So not four years, but six years after starting. And those who don't finish usually leave with debt. So you'll read all the headlines about how problematic this is in society, um, we know that students with mentors are more likely to graduate. So that means more tuition revenue for the schools, but also more importantly, like greater economic mobility for the students we're supporting. Now, IU has quite a good graduation rate, um, better than 95, 96% of colleges. Um, so IU is sort of the top tier of schools we would work with, but community colleges regional comprehensive universities, they, they don't have the same support structures. So our, our value prop is every student entering these institutions, we're gonna find them a personalized mentor we've trained on our software. We're gonna connect them, monitor that relationship until they graduate. 
and the result is more students graduating. And at this point, how many schools are you involved with? How many mentors and mentees do you have going right now? So we work with about 200 institutions across the US and we have trained over 100,000 mentors since founding the business and hundreds of thousands of students being mentored you know, as we speak. Uh, still a ways to go. There are millions we want to reach, but I think we're probably like the largest scale mentoring operation, even bigger than like big brothers, big sisters, because the technology behind us lets us scale beyond what you could do manually. Can you hit people with your website in case they just want to dig around your company and learn a little bit more? Yes, uh, mentorcollective.org. Mentorcollective.org. And I would say, look, so many people that are listening to us now, they're either students or they have kids that are students or they have friends that have kids that are students. Tell them to be on the lookout for this. This is an incredible thing that makes your experience at Indiana easier, better, more fulfilling. You build a relationship that who knows where that will lead. And I can't help but think that if I had had a mentor at that crucial age, I might not be doing this podcast with Eric right now. <laughs> so too little too, too little too late for us, but good on you, sir, and all the folks getting involved with that. It's amazing. Thanks for having me, guys. And that brings us to basketball on the men's side. So there's so much I want to say and want to talk to you about when it comes to IU men's basketball, but we're on the heels of losing to Wisconsin on the road, a team that we have not beaten since the civil war uh, in Madison. I, I did love the fact that they brought up that the number one song in the country, the last time we won there was truly madly deeply by Savage Garden. There you go. I mean, it's, <laughs> was... it's been a while, by the way, on a completely on a completely separate note, Holly and I did something over the weekend with Stella that was so enjoyable that anybody ages 40 or up, I recommend you doing. Really, the, the sweet spot would be 40 to like 55. You can go on YouTube and search for first two hours broadcast of MTV. Mm. And you can watch the first ever two hours of MTV. and. It is sensational. I mean, it's it's exciting because you're like, what's the next song? Because you know the trivia question, what's the first video ever played on MTV? Yeah, uh, Video Killed the Radio Star. Exactly. But what's number two and three and four? And we just kind of scanned through it and it was so enjoyable. And my daughter Stella was like, why do people look like that? <laughs> um, but yeah. really great songs. Some word that... I never have heard of. Oh, never. It shocked that. me that I had never heard of it. There was a band called Shoes. Do you remember <laughs> a band called Shoes? I don't. What what year did it launch? 82? 83? I think it was 84. I, I can't remember. Somewhere was, around there. It was right before it was around like if it was around Uve Blob time. It's like the first IU players I remember and MTV becoming a thing, but a little bit later, let's say. 85, oh, 86. No, I'm sorry, 81, 1981. 81. Yeah, see, so, um, but when it got into the mid-80s, 
I remember like on a Friday night, my family, my mom, my dad, my sister and I would all sit down. We'd watch like MTV for a couple hours and it's like, oh, the new Robert Palmer videos out. Let's Robert go. Palmer's in the first two hours, dude. Is he? That's good. Yeah. That's good. But God it's really him. interesting because you get leftovers from the 70s. So it's not you're not in full 80s music yet. No, or right? style or clothes. But but it's there. It's like half and half. Like you get 80s and you get late 70s and there's a couple artists that have two songs in the first two hours they don't repeat any songs in the first two hours <clears throat> but the old vjs like the original vjs are there i mean it's just great so okay forgetting all that wow so yeah. iu basketball the loss at wisconsin was bad but i said this to you and to the goons on our text chain look we did not expect to win that game. Wisconsin is a top 15 team. They are playing incredibly high-level basketball. They're at home. And we were missing Khalil Ware. I mean, Khalil Ware, I would argue, is the most important player on Indiana's team because of what he does on both sides of the court. Like Malik may be our best offensive player. He's not our best defensive player. Khalil is probably our second best offensive player and best defensive player and a rim protector and changes everything, stuff that Peyton Sparks can't do, no one else on the team can do. So the meltdown that happened with the fan base after that game honestly kind of annoyed me because I was like, listen, I was more upset when we beat Moorhead State by one at home. I thought that rang more alarm bells than losing by 12 or 15 at Wisconsin without our most valuable, important piece. Now, you said something in that text chain. Do you remember what you said that, that I think was fair? You no, said I, it's... No, I do not. You said <laughs> it's not that game. Oh, that it's it's, it's just, compounding. Yeah, it's, it's every game is another time to remember the last 20 years. Yeah, it just... We could go back, if you want to, to 1993. Uh, and and even losing losing as we did in both of the tournaments in in Calbert and Company's junior and senior year, of course, most of the time, even great teams, the last game of the year ends in disappointment for them and the fan base. But ever since then, every since then, every single season's ended with a disappointing loss, and then it just keeps building. It's like generational now, right? And and so then you get. Where we thought for a while Tom Crean was getting us back to the mountaintop and we'd stay there, but nope, okay. So we come back down and then there's Archie and it's just kind of a, a miserable experience for four years. And so it's this this roller coaster ride we've been on, but like each time I think the amount of time that we will give a coach, we will give a program, we will give a team a season, even a player gets gets shorter because we're so fed up from the last 30 years that at this, like the one thing we talked about that is extraordinary though, because with Archie, it was like a low, slow, long burn of till finally everybody was just done with them and was booing them in Indianapolis. This happened overnight. This happened. I think it started to go with the Nebraska game. And then when we got railroaded by Purdue, like the entire fan base was over it. So now anything that happens the rest of the year, I think people are just going to keep piling on unless something miraculous happens, which 
I'm not holding my breath for. I'm not saying it's possible. I'm not saying Woody hasn't turned around his first two seasons around this time of the year, but it seems like it's going to be trickier this year with the pieces he has to flip things around like he did in, in years one and two. All right, so a couple things I want to say. I agree with everything you just said. So that's a first. Um, that is remarkable. There is no question that the way they are playing now and what the record is and the way the team looks and all of the statistical analysis where we're ranked 94th in Bartorvik and 96th in Ken Palm and 101 in the net is unacceptable. I mean, like, of course it is. But Woody would say that also. And it, I'm not excusing any of this. Of course we should be playing better. Of course we should be a better team than we are right now. But I've seen so much negativity online that you said this right before we came on that you are over it and bored by the negativity. Yeah, and come on. I agree. And I think some of it is just misery loves company. And it's just this like um, cycle of like, no, 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 you're not as pissed off as I am. Let me tell you how bad it is. And then that will make me feel better because I out negative, negative you. You know what I mean? It, yeah. That's what it feels like. And I don't want to be part of that. Woody cares about Indiana basketball. He really does. I would argue he cares as much about it as any of us fans and more than most. It is a huge part of his life. It has been. I don't want to get into like the recruiting strategies and all that. He does care about the program and you can tell in the press conferences, it's eating away at him. He's getting short with reporters. It's bothering him for sure. He thought he could come back here and turn this thing around and compete for big 10 and national championships. And right now it's not happening. <clears throat> so I, I just wish everybody would just kind of take the foot off the gas. I don't believe anything is going to happen to change this staff at the end of this year, unless Woody decided that he's just done with it. But they're not firing him, okay? They're not. They gave Archie, who had no ties to the program, four years. They're not going to get rid of Woody, who's been meaningful to the program, three years, two of which we went to the tournament in, when Archie didn't sniff it. Well, he sniffed it the COVID year. But he didn't sniff competing in the Big Ten. And last year, we won 12 games in the Big Ten. So okay. I, I think we have, to, we have to ease off a little bit. Again, it's not acceptable where we're at. But I want to put a spin on this and say, again, we have not lost any game yet that on paper we really should have won. Now, you can easily make the argument that that's the problem. Yeah, we should on paper. Of course. I get that. We shouldn't lose at Nebraska or Rutgers. Ever. I, before the Big Ten season started, we thought we needed to win 12 or 13 games to have a legitimate chance to make the tournament. Okay? Yep. yep. <clears throat> Most people think 13 is a shoe-in. 12, maybe depending on what you do on the big in the Big Ten tournament and depending on who the 12 are that you beat, you know, that, that could weigh in. So let's just go through the rest of the schedule real quick here, Ward. Okay. We play Illinois on the road. Gonna lose. They have they have Terrence Shannon back. That's a that that's likely a loss, right? We lose that game, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. We play Iowa at home. <clears throat> We've beaten Iowa several times recently, and they're not very good and they don't have a superstar. That's a win to me. Probably. We, Penn State at home. That's a win. We should win that. We then play Ohio State on the road. Look. We beat Ohio State at home. 
They're not playing great basketball. They're not that good. <clears throat> is it is it a definite loss? No, it's not. No, and it's not likely we win. But I, I'm not going to put it in the win category yet. Okay, yeah, but it should be a competitive game. We play Purdue on the road. We beat them last year, but it's hard to see how we can beat them this year on the road. Won't happen. Northwestern at home. I don't give a shit that they've beaten us in the past. We can beat Northwestern at home. We can. We probably will. Three wins. Nebraska at home. Nebraska on the road has been utter shit this year. Utter shit. We can beat Nebraska at home. We can. We can. But I even think it's likely we beat Nebraska at home. That's four wins. We then play Penn State on the road. That is a winnable game. That is a very winnable game. That, to me, is five wins. We play Wisconsin at home with hopefully a full team. They didn't scare me. They didn't stop our offense, and we don't even have that great of an offense. We scored a bunch of – we scored over 50 points on them in the second half. Can we win that home game? Of course we can. So if we play well, that's a sixth win. Then we play Maryland on the road. They suck. They suck. That's a winnable game. I'm not saying we will win, but it's winnable. Mm -hmm. That's eight wins. We then play Minnesota on the, or that might be seven wins. Minnesota on the road. They suck. Excuse me. Could they beat us? Of course. And then we play Michigan State at home. My point is, there are nine wins out there for us in this season, which would get us to 13 and seven. Now, maybe I'm being wildly optimistic and it's there's seven wins out there. That gets us to 11 and nine, which at least would, would, prove a turnaround from where we are right now. <clears throat> this season isn't over. It's frustrating as hell. We have not played good basketball in virtually any full game. Well, I think that might be part of the problem, but but look, I agree with your assessment of all those games. If they if even most of them break that are maybe could go either way, if most if, if the majority break in our favor, we're we're in the tournament, not in an impressive fashion, because being from the Big Ten, unless you win the whole thing or maybe come in second, anybody coming out of the Big Ten is not going to be impressive based on the strength of schedule. But to see this actually happening and it not just be a thought exercise, I feel so much is in the hands of Xavier Johnson. Fair enough. Now, look, we, to be optimistic, Gabe has started coming. We've started to see it from Gabe. He's, he's made it at a couple different levels. He kind of like ripped the net. And if his confidence, like McKenzie's, has been predating his own, starting to go, it's like, okay, all right, there's, there's some buckets. Max turning into a bucket. Gabe, if Gabe yes. could even be like six or eight points, Trey is starting to have more good shooting games than not. Okay. So all those things, you, you're not going to really like, they're all going to be clicking on all cylinders every night. But if X could get his head right, get into those games and just be a positive contributor, of course, Big Ten tournament of old X would be amazing and could really turn us into a, a, a pretty decent team. But if he could just come in and be a positive contributor, 
I think your 12 or 13 wins in the Big Ten is very realistic. And I just can't help but keep going back for different reasons in both seasons, one and two. Around this mid-January time, Woody started to figure something out. So let's pray we're going for three years in a row that he sees the pieces he has and what they're doing and is able to get him clicking. Mackenzie and Baco's last four games, 17 points, 15 points, 19 points, 13 points. That's a freshman. That is a freshman. Two of five three-pointers, two of four three-pointers, two of four three-pointers, three of eight three-pointers, one of two, two of four, four of five, two of six. And he was even <clears> taken <throat> out of one game like four minutes into the first half. He could have he done a lot more than that that game. He is playing more minutes. The last four games, 32 minutes, 25 minutes, 34 minutes, 30 minutes. They are clearly one of two things is happening. <clears throat> He's learning defensively where to be a little bit more and they're getting more comfortable or they're saying, fuck it. <laughs> he's a bucket and we're just gonna we're gonna take the risk on defense i don't care he's being more productive i totally agree with you gabe is looking more comfortable he's looking for a shot even the game that we were at where he couldn't find the bucket he was at least shooting them mm -hmm. which is good he's looking at the bucket he's driving to the hole a little bit more he had a great finish in the wisconsin game absolutely so, there are things happening that are good. Trey needs to be the Swiss Army Knife role player. That's what he needs to be. We can't count on him for 20 points. That's not what he should be asked to do. Xavier needs to be the point guard that we know he has the capability of being. Will he be it for every game? No. Can he be it for two out of three games? Three out of four games? Yes. And we need him to round back into form. And even, even just on him, even if in a game where it's clearly not going his way, if he could just take a deep breath and be like, okay, it's not my night and just let the game come a little bit more to him or just get it, get it going for everybody else. And just oh, be a, just be a beast on defense. Yeah. Like just be a beast. Cause he's yeah, our best he, guard defender. And he can always do that. Right. And then you got Malik renew. Here's Malik's last several games, 28 points. The game against Minnesota or Purdue, not a good game. Eight points. 16 points, 13 points, 23, 14, 34, 25. Malik's a bucket. Oh, yeah. Malik is offensively gifted, <clears throat> staying in games longer, not fouling as much, which has been a huge step up. He's averaging 16.5 points a game. I do believe he needs to be a better rebounder. But also, I've talked to some people, and they're like, listen, this dude is expending so much energy being the guy on offense he can't be a great rebounder right now. Like, it's just, he's not a super athlete like Trace was. So all of his energy is going into carrying the team offensively right now when they need to. This team has pieces that are playing better. We're seeing signs. It's not all come together yet. It's ugly. The offense isn't pretty. The defense hasn't been stingy. But there's still nine wins out there if things come together. And I'm tired and bored by the negativity too. And we've certainly been on that train before, me specifically. We were really kind of the vanguard. <laughs> you know, we were being sure. negative when Moorhead State came to town. And so maybe we're just over it sooner. But, but that's kind of my point, Ward. Like when we beat Moorhead State by one and Army by single digits, we're like, oh my God, when these big teams come into Assembly Hall, they're going to smoke us. Well, that hasn't happened except for Purdue, right? That hasn't, we, Kansas, we should have won. Yeah. One of the best teams in the country. We, we should win these games. You know, we've lost two games at home, Purdue and Kansas, but 
they are playing better than what they were playing against Moorhead State at home. And if they weren't, they wouldn't beat Ohio State. Like, that wouldn't happen. We wouldn't beat Michigan on the road if we were playing the same as we were playing against Moorhead State. <clears throat> are we playing good basketball? No. We're going to have to grind out wins and hopefully hit some key shots when needed. But the potential is there. And we saw in person some good-looking, fun basketball in that Minnesota game. And again, it's Minnesota. To a man, we were bigger than them. It was the home crowd. And despite our being in attendance, that was a very big advantage. But you, it was like, oh, look at that. Look at how they're sharing. Look at how they're spreading the floor. Look at how they're getting contributions from multiple players. They have it within them. It's just, can they do it consistently? And can they figure it out on a given night with the matchups? And still what's terrifying to me, home or away, when you say stuff like Northwestern or Iowa, and I think about the travesty that has been our defense on, on, on three-pointers, you know, and if part of that's just too many big guys out there who can't get out or can't um, make the, the switch on defense it's we can also lose any single one of those games you mentioned because of how vulnerable we are at the three-point line defensively but going back the other way if it's trey if it's mac if it's x you know still a high 30s three-point shooter for his career if those guys could just get it going enough not to be a great three-point shooting team but like an okay one 13 wins 13 wins and here's why Here's why I am choosing to be more optimistic. I put a tweet out that said this, but I got COVID like six weeks ago and it kicked my ass. And then I got sick again and I never fully recovered from the COVID. I had some lingering effects. <clears throat> and then I got sick again. I'm coughing on this podcast, as you can tell. It's been a shitty six weeks just from a personal health standpoint. It's been rainy here. It's been cold. You know what the highlights have been over those six weeks? Every time Indiana plays, I get excited to watch him play. Every time. I want to get hyped for the game. Now, I've been disappointed a lot, but I get excited. I put on my Indiana gear. I get hyped up for the game. I make sure that nobody bothers me during the game. I grab a cigar. I go outside. You and I get together. We go to Bloomington. This is what we are fans for. These 30-plus times a year where we get to at least get hyped up for the hope that it's all going to come together. And I'm not going to just take a giant shit on the program and say, I'm done. I'm out. I don't care. Like, I hate reading all this stuff. No, I love Indiana basketball. I love it. And I'm going to continue to love it. And I'm going to hope that every game is a chance for the tide to turn. And that's how I'm going to choose to live the rest of this. Am I going to be pissed off when it if it doesn't? Of course I am, because it's unacceptable. But what good does it do? To, to shit on everything the way that social media and the message boards are doing right now, if your thought is that the higher-ups at Indiana need to hear the frustration from fans so that they understand this isn't acceptable, guess what? Message heard. They got it. They understand how pissed off everyone is. Now let's support the kids and support the program and support the staff and try to win 13 games in the Big Ten. Yeah, I, I can't disagree with any of that though i think there is a balance right and that you say message received loud and clear but if we continue to see garbage basketball for much of the rest of the season uh, people need to keep dis voicing their displeasure or complacency 
will sort of take hold and everybody, I, I, I do feel it is the duty of the fan to say this is not good enough and and that's just not a one-time thing or a couple of games. Now we'll let it go and no matter what happens the rest of the season, we'll be supportive. That said, personally for me, what has occurred, let's say since the Nebraska game, just have a sense of humor about it. Just lighten up a little bit. Just realize it's not life or death. You can get excited. You can get passionate. You can get disappointed. But then let it go. Let it go. Even maybe while it's happened, where in years past, I maybe scream or shout and the pets run to other rooms. I'm laughing. Like, it's kind of funny. Like, that shot was so bad. I'm just going to laugh. And I do find... You know, oh, if we end up being competitive and even winning, I still get very excited. But if we lose, you know, I'm just like, hey, it's a bunch of really, really good kids. And look, we we know this. These are not a bunch of asshole entitled young men. They're out there doing their best. And if it's not going their way, just do yourself a favor, do them a favor and don't don't just spew. Don't whatever disappointments you have about your own life, don't put it on them on a message board. Yeah, and I get being angry and I this is meaningful. Indiana basketball is meaningful to generation after generation. The worst thing is when you think there's not effort. But I don't think that's the case. Like I think these kids are trying. I don't think they gave Look, if they gave up, they would have gotten blitzed by 40 against Wisconsin. But they fought back. They cut the lead to 9. They came out in the second half. Yeah. You know, against Purdue, they did battle back a couple times to try to make a little bit of a run. They're not just phoning it in. They're trying. It's not good enough. But it's what? not like they don't give a shit. I think there's a difference between trying and mental toughness. You know, it's not like an apathy that they're dealing with where they're just like, I don't really care. I just want to get this over with and go home and play Xbox. I I, I think where this team is struggling and this – has a lot to do, I would say, is with leadership, particularly with players, or I don't know. It's the alchemy of great teams is this mental fortitude to be like, even if it's going against us, even if we're outmatched, outmanned, they have more talent or it's just their night, how can we just wheel ourselves to victory? This team hasn't shown much of that. And when you're down by 20, it's a lot easier to play loose and free and get it back up to eight or nine. So I'm not like super impressed by starting to make a run when we're just getting okay. our ass handed to us. But to your point, I don't think it's because they're just not trying. I just don't think they're that tough. That may be true. That may be true. But I, I, I'm not going to just like shit on everybody all the time for the rest of the year. Every time we lose a game that, I mean, Illinois is a better team than us. Like I want to see us compete. I want to see us play hard. And I want to see us win, of course. But if we don't, I'm not going to use that game as an indictment on everything. Uh, it's just, I, I I can't live that way for the rest of the year. And I don't want to. That I said, you. I applaud you for that, my friend. That said, we're taking a little break from basketball for our special guest this week. <sighs> and there is no better antidote than our guest for a malaise that may have set in about basketball because it's not often we get to talk to a goat. And that's exactly what our guest today is. So what do you say we get to it? The interview that happened on our trip in person in Bloomington just a week ago. I will say for those of you who are going to be viewing this, 
This is the best looking video we've ever put out. Shout out to the good people from the Mark Cuban Center, Galen Clavio, Andrew, everybody who came together. Thank you, Jeremy. This looks like dynamite. So check it out on peas.com, even if you're listening to it right now. Here comes a guest. Here comes a guest. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we are here in person in the presence of an absolute legend. Eric, I hope you've got a good night's sleep. You're <laughs> hydrated because this man's introduction is going to be a lengthy one. Here we go. And it's weird doing it in person. We obviously don't get to do these in person. It's an honor to be in his presence. So I hope I don't screw up too bad. Hailing from Lebanon, Pennsylvania. That part's right. It is. All right. We are talking to a gentleman who earned a state title in high school. He earned a national championship with Westchester State College in 1961, beating the behemoth giant, my hometown school, St. Louis University. We are, of course, talking to a gentleman who became the IU soccer head coach in 1963 through 2003, where he amassed a record of 544, 101, and 45. He never had a losing season as a head coach. He took every one of his four-year players to the NCAA College Cup. He made 28 NCAA tournament appearances, including 17 consecutive in his final 17 seasons, 16 appearances in the College Cup, 12 appearances in the national final, 10 Big Ten championships, six national championships. By the way, if you're watching this on video, you see all the runner-up trophies. The big ones are downstairs, and we'll cut those in to show you the footage of those. From 1973 through 2003, no team won more NCAA championships or appeared in more college cups than Indiana. He has a 68-22 and record in tournament play, the best winning percentage of any school, and his career ended at Indiana when he walked away in 2003 and walked away in a way that Hollywood wouldn't write with a national championship. He is the all-time winningest coach in collegiate soccer history with 544 wins. More than 20 of his former IU players are co have coached in the collegiate college ranks, including some professional coaches as well. He was the NC NSCAA National Coach of the Year in unprecedented six times, the Big Ten Coach of the Year in unmatched eight times. In 89, he earned the highest honor for a college coach when he was inducted into the United States Soccer Federation Hall of Fame. In 2008, he was inducted into the NSCAA Hall of Fame. In 2005, the NSCAA honored him with an award in his namesake, the Jerry Yagley Award. He's the Bicentennial Medal Award winner in 2020, the Presidential Medal of Excellence in 2018. He's everything. He was the I inducted into the IU Athletics Hall of Fame in 2009, the IU Foundation President's Medallion in 2004. And I particularly like this one. And we'll get into the history. But given the Bill Orwig Award in 1995, which I find ironic because of Bill Orwig's history with the soccer program, all that is to say it is an honor to be here with an absolute legend and the greatest of all time, Coach Jerry Yeagley. And we usually clap here, but we don't have both of our hands. Thank you so much, Eric and Ward. It's great being with you guys. Well, Coach, I'm you know, we, we, we tried to do this traditionally over Zoom. And I really think fate's just aligned that we were having technical issues. To be able to do this with you in person, it's such an honor. And thank you so much for taking the time again to do this. Happy to do it. All right, let's get into, let's just get back into the time machine. I want to get into your origin story because you are a superhero and every superhero has an origin story. <laughs> so take us back to Lebanon. I was born in Lebanon, PA but moved at a young age to a small town, Myerstown. We had 3,000 people. 
There were no stoplights. We had one playground, and that's where I was introduced to soccer because the director of the playground, a fellow by the name of Barney Huffman, he was the soccer coach at our high school. And when we came to the playground as kids riding our bikes, we would get out of our, off our bikes and there on the grass area in our playground, soccer balls. He had a bag of soccer balls. So we started kicking the soccer ball at a very, very early age and I fell in love with the game and I give Barney, I wanted to be like Barney, he was my hero. And he was your hero. He was the coach. He was he was a high school coach. So immediately your hero became a coach, not a player, right? Like you 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 immediately Correct. kind of connected to the coaching side of it. I did, but Barney in his little yellow Studebaker when we were in high school took a number of us to different games, primarily Penn State to watch them play. They were a power, and also Westchester where he played, and that's. Uh, that's where I fell in love with watching the game and wanting to be more than just a recreational player. Uh, and then our high school. We were the smallest high school to ever win the state championship in Pennsylvania. There were 47 of us in my senior class. That's boys and girls. So we, uh, and it was the only championship that our school ever had. Uh, shortly after that, the school became a consolidation, merged with other schools. But it was Myerstown High School in 1958 that won the state championship. What, when did you realize, because I think, you know, we grew up in the driveway shooting shots, being like, yeah, Coach Knight's definitely going to call. Uh, but that never happened. He never called. He never called. When, when did you realize that you were, you were actually of the stuff, that you were going to be good enough and be able to make soccer a part of your life beyond the playground, beyond high school? We played our state championship final at Westchester State. And the coach there, Mel Lorback, similar to Barney, small in stature, but he was a military guy, and he, well, I'll get into that. But anyway, we won on their field, and he asked two of us who played in that game from Myerstown, Billy Falk, my good buddy who was a tremendous player, and myself to consider coming to Westchester. He invited us to join the team, and that's when I felt, hey, I can go on. There were no scholarships. He said, I can give you a waiter's job. So you get, you'll get your food and you'll get paid a little bit with a waiter's job. That was the extent of it at that time uh, at Westchester State, which is now Westchester University. But uh, Mel became also one who shaped me. And I think Barney and Mel were the two, even though they were so different. Barney gave, us, gave me the passion of the game, the beauty of the game, Mel the administrative stuff, the motivational stuff, the behind the scenes stuff. And between the two of them, I developed my own philosophy and took from both of them. Two questions. As a player, what position did you play? I played in the midfield in high school. And at Westchester, I played defender. And I, was a, I was a tough guy. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I was pretty good on the ball, but I was not a creative, you know, guy who, who was going to make the game necessarily, but I could destroy the game, I'll tell you that. <laughs> and, and I did it not, you know, within the rules. 
if if there was a forward playing where I, in my part of the field, I tried to at a very early time say, this is mine. This is, you know, I'm going to own this area. Mm-hmm. And f- with a legal tackle, but a hard tackle. Right. Uh, and many times uh, the, the forward didn't want the ball too much after that. When did you start realizing that coaching was something that interested you? Did that happen while you were playing at high school or Westchester? I think actually before that, or before Westchester, I think Barney again, I, he was my t- high school PE teacher and health teacher and my soccer coach. And uh, I wanted to do that. It was uh, when I finished high school, my family, uh, uncle who's a doctor and an uncle who's a dentist, and George and Harry wanted me to follow them and go to Penn State and uh, become either a doctor or a dentist. And my folks, when I said, Mom and Dad, I, I, wanna, I wanna go to Westchester. I wanna be a coach, I wanna be a teacher, and I wanna play soccer at Westchester. They weren't real happy at first, but after a while, uh, they were just happy that I was happy and was enjoying it and that I was following my passion and what I wanted to do. There's this trend that starts in high school, through college, and then obviously into your coaching career of championships. Uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that you had those experiences younger as a player and then, of course, later as a coach. Did you, did you start to recognize what was different between your teams and the teams that didn't get the championships? That it, Was it something about the, the chemistry of the team, the approach to the game? Because it seems like there's so many really, really good teams that don't win the championship. Did you, did you start to figure out at that point what is going to be the difference between a team that wins it all and doesn't? That's a very interesting point, Ward. And I'm coach. I just got to stop you. We don't like giving Ward compliments. Oh, we don't. No, All no, day, no. It, it's All just... day, coach. <laughs> you, you just let it fly. <laughs> At Westchester, when we won the championship uh, in '61, in the fall of '61, I realized because we had to go to St. Louis, to your hometown, mm-hmm. and win there, which is very, very hard. And they were a very gifted team. But the one thing that we had, and also which I felt we had in high school, was, as you mentioned, the word chemistry, where we played for each other and we were one. And also, we outworked Mm. our opponents. We outfought our opponents. The mental and physical toughness, the work ethic, and that came from Barney and Mel, more from Mel. He was... He was great. Again, military background. You had to be fit. You had to do an awful lot of running. Mm-hmm. And we we outworked and uh, outfought our opponents. We were good players. Don't get me wrong. We weren't. Uh, and we had some some very good players at all positions. But we were more of a, a th- uh, not a thoroughbred team, but more of a homogeneous, tough, hard working group that played for each other. All right, so you win the championship, you, you're done with college, and now it's time to make a living, and you've got to be a professional. So you have a chance to be a professional soccer player for a little bit, right? <laughs> Walk us through the transition from, from college to that and then into the adult life. Okay. We won the national championship at Westchester, 
and I was asked to join. Now you can say it's professional. We got 25 bucks for playing, and if you won, you got 25 bucks. And I played, our first game was uh, played for Team Philadelphia, and we played in uh, Reading, PA. And one of the past grads from Westchester, Remley was the last name, uh, was on that team. And it just so happened that Remley and I went for a 50-50 ball. I got to the ball first, ticked it away. He kicked full force where the ball was, and that's where my leg was. That ended my professional career. Mm. <laughs> I broke both bones in my lower leg in my first appearance. Oh. And uh, that was my senior year in college. So I had to go through the winter on crutches with a cast all the way up to my hip almost. Yeah, it was a full cast. And uh, walked across the stage at graduation with a half cast on with a, a rubber uh, that I walked in a walking cast. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So that was it. That was it. So that was it. Sports medicine where I wasn't where it no, is no, today. No, no, sports medicine. They would have uh, had me through that a lot, lot sooner. But So the sports gods, the soccer gods intervened and said, you are not going to be a player. I'm not going to be a player. How point. did you then transition into becoming a coach? Thank, thank goodness that Mel and a couple others, Dr. Cottrell at, at uh, Westchester, took a liking to me. Uh, and wanted, they saw something in me in terms of my future, perhaps as a coach, and encouraged me to go to grad school at Pitt. And they knew Dr. Orman, who was head of the program at Pitt, and they lined it up for me, and I, I got uh, actually a scholarship to go on for my master's degree at the University of Pittsburgh and, you know, continue to study to become a coach. My Part of my job there to pay for my education was to <laughs> proctor the wrestling dorm. That was quite an experience. <laughs> they, were na they were national contenders in wrestling, and I'll tell you, that was, those guys are crazy when it comes to getting ready to wrestle back in those days, what they had to go through and so yeah. on. And I also uh, had to teach a bit at Mount Lebanon High School as part of my uh, scholarship there. And that was a year and a half. And at the end of that time, Dr. Orman also fortunately took a liking to me. And he knew Dean Daniels at Indiana, who was head of the hyper school. And they needed someone who could come and teach, not coach, soccer and other activities. Because at the time, every student at Indiana had to take two PE classes. And those of us that were hired as instructors, later became assistant professor, had to teach those activities. And I was in charge of soccer, but I taught many, many other activities from, gosh, judo to badminton to... Wait, wait a minute. You're teaching judo? Oh, yeah. Do you know anything about judo? I didn't know anything about <laughs> judo. But I sat in the class with a guy who was in charge of that area okay and learned how to teach wow. the the judo could you, fencing could you demonstrate a couple <laughs> judo moves I could, on i could have i could have a few years ago yeah sure oh what, do you what, what about, been, real quick i just and then, and then go to this i just want to know do you remember your opening salary 
Do you remember what you made? My opening salary at Indiana was six thousand dollars. <laughs> six thousand, and I thought I was on top of the world. <laughs> sure. And uh, of course, my wife. We married after I was here a few years. I got here in '63, married in '66. Uh, she was making forty-eight hundred as a teacher. Wow. So we between were, the two of you, you're in five figures. We were over ten thousand. <laughs> yeah. A That's power couple. Power. <laughs> uh, let's. In the run-up there of having to to teach classes before actually becoming a coach, what what were you learning teaching badminton and judo and and the like that that translated? Because learning to be a coach is also learning to be a teacher. So what what did you find in there that ended up helping you on the field? Well, it did, Ward. Uh, you know adhering to basic principles of movement and so on that ca that you need in all different kinds of activities carried over to soccer at the same time i was hired to be the supervisor right. of the indiana soccer club i was not the coach i was a supervisor and i from day one said my goal to myself is to get this club to varsity status and I let uh, the dean know and, and other people, uh, including the athletic director, that I was hoping that this could happen. And uh, had I known it was going to take 10 years, right. I'm not sure I would have come here. But it's the best thing that ever happened to me. And those 10 years of club, while I was teaching, I learned... You can't take anything for granted. You you can't rely on administration to do the things for you. You we had to do everything. I had to do everything from, you know, washing the uniforms. My wife did that. Line the fields. You know, hang the nets. Uh, we begged and borrowed and uh, from different spots. Uh, maybe <laughs> steal a little bit. We <laughs> didn't steal. You call it borrow. But <laughs> borrow. <laughs> you know, people that left things in the hyper. You know, yeah. shorts and such. We, you know, we needed for practice, and we got stuff from the football program for practice. And we didn't have a big budget, uh, and we tried to plan our trips so that we could stop at <laughs> Bud Jensen's house. Bud and Harry Jensen's mom would cook for the team, and we would try to plan our trips so we could get close enough there. Oh, it was a wonderful time, and, and we had to do it all, and we had to do it together, and we had to do it as a team. And w the players got to appreciate so much when the people came to watch us. They would hand out flyers in the dorms. They would hang sheets on the trees, uh, anything to garner attention for, for a crowd, and we were getting very good crowds, which led to the point where we were asking to be considered for varsity. Well, you, look, we talked a little bit before this started about recruiting and how important recruiting is. And we follow recruiting, you know, really closely for basketball and football. There's all kinds of things you look for in recruiting. You're looking for the character of the player. You're looking for the skill, obviously, the toughness. You in those club days was looking for something else when you were recruiting. There was something <laughs> that you were hoping maybe somebody had. What was that element that you were hoping players had? You're, you're exactly right, Eric. In my classes that I taught, I would look for superior athletes. I would look for my first goalkeeper, Max Rogers. He was an SAE. He was a very good high school player, but not good enough for IU. He was in my handball class, and I could just tell 
great hands, great movement. And I asked Max, he was pretty good size. I said, Max, would you consider coming out for the club and consider being our goalie? We don't have a, we didn't have an accomplished goalie. And Max came out, and I'll tell you this, the first game we ever played was against Dayton, and it was on the Jordan field behind the fraternity sororities, not a very big space. And Max was in goal. And the first two times Dayton attacked, Max was deer in the headlights. He froze, and we're down 2-0. And I'm saying to myself, my golly, what am I doing getting this guy out of PE class coming to goal, and he freezes? We win the game. Five to two, and Max became a very, very good goalie. And more importantly, he went on as an ambassador for soccer, started leagues in Michigan, and became a, sort of a Pied Piper for the game. Mm. So you're looking for superior athletes, but you were also looking possibly because you didn't have like a very expensive bus to take. <laughs> so you needed. Oh, that's good. If you had a big car, you made the club. <laughs> Yeah, a station wagon especially. There you go. There I you mean, go. you'd be on every trip. Yeah. So that that was important as well. But uh, another of uh, an example, we're practicing on Woodlawn Field outside of Hyper, and I see this this guy outside of the fence area, and he's there two or three days, and. And I see him talking to one of our guys on the on the club team, and I asked the club guy, I said, who is that guy? He said, that's Bob Cooley. He's my buddy. He went out for football, didn't make the football team. And uh, he's just watching because I'm his buddy, and he likes sports. And I said, well, let's have Bob come on out. And he said, well, he's never kicked a soccer ball. I said, I don't care. <laughs> he, he's probably a pretty good athlete. He's from the region, and he was big and strong. Well, Bob Cooley came out for the soccer team, had never kicked a soccer ball, and to make a long story short, five years later, he was the first African-American player to play pro soccer in the United States. Wow, played for the wow. Cincinnati Comets. Yeah. Because he hung around. He hung around. He grabbed our All-American Turkish player, Yumika Sim, grabbed him and took him 1v1 in the handball courts, worked with him, worked with anybody he could. He was superior in the air. He was a defender, and he was tough and a very, very good athlete. But he picked up the foot skills in that period of time to become a professional soccer player. We should talk about the tribe that you guys started as we're, mm -hmm. we're talking about getting on the road and <laughs> players with cars. Um, oh, could you Lord. talk a little bit about the <laughs> tribe that you guys you, formed you, in these you days? You would bring that up, <laughs> yeah. Lord. Yeah. Uh, that game, name was given by Jeff Richardson, who was a club member and later student body president. Uh, he announced that we were the Fagawi tribe, the Fagawi tribe. <laughs> And part of that was because I was generally in the leading car driving, but I had my mind on the game and mind on other things. And more than once, we ended up going the wrong direction. Uh, and therefore, the Fagawi tribe came. And it, of course, means where the you-know-what are we, because <laughs> we were lost a number of times. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about Jeff and then Gary Friesen, of course. But before we do... While they were very important in, of course, helping you get the club sport to being a varsity sport, the most important partnership that you have in your life is your wife. Talk to us about how you met your wife, 
and how you convinced her to marry you. <laughs> Marilyn was a theta, and I had uh, I had not met Marilyn, but I knew she was Miss Miss IU, very 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 attractive lady. I was I overachieved. Anyway, <laughs> uh, it was Christmas break, and one of the fellows on the team asked if he could use my car to have someone take him up to the airport. He's going skiing, and he needed a way to get up there. And could we use my car? He knew somebody in the Theta house. He had a cousin there who was a roommate with Marilyn. And okay, so he took it. Car went up there. They came back, and my car was not parked in the parking lot where I expected it to be, where I was told it was going to be. So I called over to the Theta house to, I knew his cousin, Annie, and Marilyn was her roommate, and Marilyn answered the phone, and it ended up that Marilyn had driven him up there rather than Annie. And, yes, they did park in the wrong part. We laughed. We thought it was funny. She was doing her student teaching, so she was not going to be going home over the holidays. And let's, have a, let's, let's get together and have a, have a Coke and meet. We went, had a Coke and lunch, and it was love at first sight. Was it really? You knew right away. It, I did, and I knew because I had been engaged before, and I knew what, you know, I thought was going to be it. Right. And when Mar I met Marilyn, I had that feeling. You, you know, people say you don't ever see that or ever get that. Right. But I did, and, and she did too. We met then uh, over that Christmas break, December, January, got engaged in June, married in September. Mm. And she became my best, not only my loving wife, my best friend, and my top assistant. Your equipment manager. She was my equipment manager, and I could, you know, she kept me steady because I got frustrated, I'll have to admit that, in the years when I thought, you know, now's the time we can finally get to be varsity. I think it can happen. And I would get so frustrated. I'd say, maybe I should leave. I could have opportunities to coach elsewhere or this isn't working, but I still loved being the coach of the club, but I got frustrated too. Well, let's get into that frustrating journey from club team to varsity team. Who were your, your allies and who were you working against in that, <laughs> that tumultuous journey? It was. We became a quite, a, quite a popular club sport, and we were getting a good following. Uh, crowds were good. And we were getting good coverage in the IDS. The IDS was very much in our favor. As a matter of fact, they had some. There were student petitions for us to become varsity. There were editorials for us to become varsity. Uh, number of the faculty members and members of the athletics committee I, I knew were in favor of it, mm -hmm. but the big obstacle was our athletic director. They hadn't had a new sport in a quarter of a century. Wrestling was the last sport that was made varsity. And Bill Orwig, who was the athletic director, and that in those days they had eight sports. They were all men's sports, and it, it was generally the football coaches, the good old boys became the athletic directors, and he wasn't looking to add any new, new sports. As a matter of fact, we had several not-so-fun confrontations. I don't want to go into that, but... He finally had a meeting where the head of the intramurals, that, that was Bob Stumpner, they were in charge of club sports. The dean of students, Tom Schreck, 
And our athletic director, Bill Orwig, sat me down and said, slow down. This is not what we want from a club sport. You're doing, you're overdoing it, basically. You need to be back and more recreational. And that was a dark day for me. Yeah, sure. That was a dark day for me. And then I finally realized, well, we're not going to get it by being, you know, negative and doing petitions to say, why isn't soccer? But I have to do it in a, in a positive way. We have to find a way for, for it to be wanted. And that's when the Jeff Richardson, who was our on our club and the student body president, and Gary Friesen, who was our club, uh, he was our, our captain of our club. He was an attorney and a sharp guy. They and others would go out to the Herman Wells, mm. would go out to people on the committee, on the athletics committee, and talk to them. I couldn't be doing this because self-serving. But anyway, it got to the point where we had a lot of allies, and Herman Wells was, he, he, we had a number of international players at the time, number of international students. He, he liked the international aspect. The, the committee members felt positive. And Jeff Richardson, as student body president, was a member of that committee, uh, athletics committee as well. And they finally got together, got it on the agenda, got it for a vote, and they voted for it. Bill Armstrong didn't have, or Bill Orwig didn't have, uh, Bill Armstrong was an ally as well, mm -hmm. I should mention that. Sure. Marilyn, my wife, worked at the foundation, and Bill befriended her and me, and he was very supportive, and he was a very important, just like Herman Wells, very important person. And came to a vote. Soccer was voted to become varsity. And Bill Orwig, I've wanted this. <laughs> Great. So I, there's so much to unpack here because you listen to that story and you think, you know, we're here in 2023. So you're thinking, okay, there's these, these young guys that are students that are helping you get there. But I think that you have to look at it in the context of where you were. This is the late 60s, early 70s. This is a time where campuses in the country are the centers for protests. We're anti-Vietnam War around this time. Civil rights is, is a huge issue in the country. So there is this feeling of activism that probably has never been replicated at that level. Correct. And it feels like you become a cause, not that you were a civil rights cause or something like that, but Jeff and Gary took it as a cause in this environment of we have power as students, we can make something happen. Did you feel that at the time, that you Eric, were part of that? that? You're right on, Eric. You uh, you hit it on the head. We, I mean, those were times when there were protests. They closed the administration building. They didn't allow it. Students were pro marching, yes. so on and so on. And students had a voice, a very strong voice, and that's where Jeff and Gary helped and it was their cause and it was his passion jeff's passion and cause as the president and jeff's still here in town i see him often and i always tell him if it hadn't been for you none of this would be here when he sits in the vip seat. Oh, that's great and i also think about you know how frustrating it must have been for you that you came in in the early 60s and you thought this is going to be my goal but had this movement 
tried to happen in the early 60s, it probably wouldn't have happened. No, it wouldn't have. You know, they would have been shot down by the authority figures because students would've. didn't have that voice. No. So things all kind of happen for a reason and everything is connected. I, I just find the story fascinating. Well, we were at the right place at the right time yeah. with the right people. And leading into this, you as a club team were invited yeah. to the tournament. To we the were. The NCAA tournament. And, and you were not allowed to go. We weren't. We were by told. the university. Yes. That again came from the athletic director and the intramural director. But we were invited because we followed NCAA rules as a club. So one of the first things I said, we're going to be a team. We're not just going to be a club, and we're going to adhere to varsity sta standards. We're not going to play grad students. We're not going to play part-time students. We'll follow the rules so when time comes, the transition's there. They can't say you're not really a varsity uh, status-type team. So, uh, yes, we did that, and uh, it all, you know, it all worked out in the end. It was, it was something because when they turned down that, NCAA bid, that became a real issue uh, with the student paper, with, again, the cause. You know, here we have a team worthy of NCAA tournament. They were invited, and the university turned them down. Yeah. It's just so remarkable that you took a club team and, and made it one of the best programs in the country without any of the benefits of being a varsity sport. But then you do get that great victory. Suddenly, Bill Orwig is is your biggest <laughs> he fan. He wraps his arm around you. <laughs> yeah. What what then is that like? That what are the the changes that happen? The support you get from the university, and and as you transition into being a varsity team, how does that look and feel different for you? Just like day to day, like oh great, now we have this because we're varsity. <laughs> there wasn't much difference. No. Really, the difference was we did have a budget for travel. We did have a budget for uniforms and soccer balls and so on. But I still was a faculty member and paid through, through the hyper school, received minuscule money initially as a coach from the athletic department. And it took the 1976 Final Four for us to be invited there for them to really start saying, hey, this, we need to really support this team. We made it to the Final Four in 76 because of help from like Bill Armstrong. He would help some of our students out in those days. They could do that with jobs or, sure. uh, you know, help in financially. Well, the, oh, sorry. This, I was just going to say this is probably a good time to realize you, you do a, when do you get the, the office in Assembly Hall and there's a, a, another new coach in town and we talked a little bit about this before we started recording, but I, I don't think it's a uh, maybe a coincidence that this golden era of Indiana sports, not just with soccer, but with with basketball, with swimming and diving. Do you remember the first time you met Coach Knight? And oh my yes, you do. We spent twenty we spent twenty three years together, and I remember meeting Coach Knight uh, in Assembly Hall and. You know, he was he was a young guy, and he's coming from Army. And, you know, I knew the soccer coach at Army, and I asked him about Bob Knight, and he said, he's a tough cookie. He said some of the generals don't like some of the <laughs> things he's he's done here at Army, but he's a hell of a coach and a hell of a good guy. And, uh, I, I you know, I met him, and I could tell right away. 
And in my office, I would sneak into us because he didn't let a lot of people into the practices. I would sort of sneak in and be in a in the shadows where he couldn't see I, where I was to watch him train. And I followed his, you know, I so enjoyed watching him teach, especially the principles and defensive principles. Mm. And then Doc Councilman, yes. the best in the world at what he did. I I sat in his classes twice, each one, whether it was the psychology class or the exercise physiology class of movement and so on. And these were not only colleagues, but people that I learned a lot from. And uh, we had very good relationships uh, with Doc. As a matter of fact, we shared an office for a period of time, Doc and I. And Bobby, he was very, very helpful. Um, he spoke to our team when I asked him to. He asked me to speak to their team, as a matter of fact, uh, as well. Not, I think it was twice. But anyway, Bobby Knight, uh, I knew all sides of Bobby, and the good side was extremely good. This is going to be probably an impossible question to, to answer, and I'm, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, and then we'll, we'll go back because I want to hit the track of, of the success of your teams. But you mentioned Doc Councilman. It's Bob Knight. It's you. We are talking about the greatest coaches in the history of each respective sport. Did you have any uh, knowledge that that was happening, that all within Bloomington, Indiana, and yourself included here, that when you would talk to Coach Knight or Doc Councilman, you are talking to the Mount Rushmore of coaches in these sports are you able to acknowledge that um, and kind of step outside of it? Or, or are they just Bobby and Doc? They were Bobby and Doc, and yet I would gobble up anything I could uh, from them to, to help uh, me and my approach to, to what I was doing. Yeah, but you're also Coach Yeagley. And maybe to them you're just Jerry, but like, do I you realize young. that you're that to them too? Well, I don't know about that. That's that's very complimentary. But they did call it the golden era yes. of IU athletics. I mean, Sam Bell included in that. We we had some of the nation's top coaches in yes. in, the, in their respective programs, and it was a wonderful time. It's well, amazing. Well, and we're sitting here in 2024, and and. You, you all remain the absolute pinnacle of your profession in those respective sports. Can you like, hey, you're, you're walking around, maybe you're, you're at home fixing a snack and you're like, whoa, like, like can you appreciate that now? I can, and I, and I can appreciate Bobby and Doc and Hobie. Yeah, uh, they're all gone. But, you know, when, when I look back on those days, it's I, I get to get a good warm fuzzy feeling. Love that. You know what I mean? And uh, it was so much pride uh, within the university, and so much you know pride within the uh, the sports. And and we were contenders, and I think we even won the medal that was given for the most outstanding athletic program in the country. I don't know what it was at the time, but. And I don't even know what it is now. I forget the name for it. But uh, we were right there because of the success of uh, so many of our programs. Let's talk a little bit about your philosophy on building teams. Because in the documentary, Worth the Wait, which if you have not seen, It's worth the watch. It is worth the watch. It is an amazing documentary about the history of IU soccer and your story specifically. Um, 
and one of the key components of it is there are two different types of players that you need on a team. Can you walk us through that and, and how you formulated that? Yes. Uh, <clears throat> again, the chemistry is so important on a team, in the, on and on the soccer team. You need to have what I call piano players. Those are your elite creative guys who can make the game and make goals happen. And then you also need to have the soldiers, the supporting players. We call those the piano carriers. And you can't have too many of one, and you might take a piano player off, even though he's more skillful than that piano carrier, but that piano carrier can bring a component to the team that makes the team better. So the coach that really wins, and I look up to a couple of them that were, again, my heroes, were those that could pick out those components, those piano carriers, those piano players, and blend them and meld them into one. That That is what I felt was the it factor. And I was fortunate to sort of have that it, it factor. Do you remember when that formulation came into your head? Like, do you remember when you started thinking in those terms? Oh, I think it stemmed back from my, even from my college days yeah. and perhaps high school, certainly. Uh, and then Harry Keogh, who coached at St. Louis University. You remember that name. Yes, I he do. Was, he was one I looked up to. He was older than I was. And I thought, that guy, he's a mailman. He's not paid full-time to coach the St. Louis University team, but he knows how to put a team out there that is so effective as a unit and getting the best out of the various types of players. Uh, he was one who I sort of looked up to and you know I agreed with that I felt gosh I I want to do the same thing and did so taking that philosophy into recruiting because that's how you're going to get your your players and movers St. Louis also Chicago were very important regions for you to go to and can you talk a little bit about why those cities produce so many great players not only for you but but for the sport St. Louis <clears throat> was the the best youth development city at that time. <clears throat> and it came from the CYO. They learned in their parishes, and they took it to their high schools, and the high schools were extremely strong in St. Louis. In Chicago, it was the ethnic clubs, and that's where a lot of the, you know, Sunday soccer, the, the older guys would bring these young guys in and you know, make them do the running and make, but still gave them the the beauty of the game and the creativity of the game. And in Chicago, we got a lot of the piano players, the Angelo DiBernardos of the world. And then in St. Louis, we also had some piano players, but mostly hard, good soccer players from St. Louis who were our midfielders and defenders. It's interesting, the ethnic club thing in Chicago, because soccer was so much bigger of a sport where they had come from that that passion came through when they were in Chicago and Chicago is a hotbed for Italians and Irish and all these different Eastern European countries. It's really interesting. I never thought about that. That's why so many came out of Chicago. Did you spend time in St. Louis? Did you spend a bunch of time? Oh my, in St. Louis? yes. 
Oh any, my! Any fav- do you remember any favorite spots? Any restaurants you would go to? Did, oh, did you ever have toasted ravioli in St. Oh, Louis? Oh my goodness! And uh, what's the pizza? Emos. Uh, Emos pizza. Yes, the thin crust. Oh, the thin crust. Oh, and messy <laughs> on top. Yeah. yeah. So for the, we do have some St. Louis listeners. I would imagine St. Louis University High was a, a high school you were from. Oh, my, from. yes. Dismet Saint, was probably the, one. Dismet, CBC. Oh, yeah, CBC, uh, sure. Oh, uh, those Rose, uh, Rose uh, oh, God. There were most of the Catholic schools. Yeah, sure. There was Priory. Uh, St. Mary's. St. Mary's. Was, we got country a number day. of uh, Country Day. Uh Oh, yeah. yeah. All of them. Did you ever and, recruit anybody from Ledoux High School? That was my high school. Does that high school ring a bell? We were not the best not a athletic. Lot of, <laughs> not a lot of elete athletes Let's just put it this it. way. I played on our basketball team. So okay. the bar is pretty low for the athletic ability. I knew school. about Ledoux High School, but I'm not sure we ever had yeah, any. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. That's fair. I may be wrong on that. No, that's fair. But, no, it was, uh, it was great. And I would call the coaches over there. And uh, not only travel over and watch, but I, I relied on input from two or three key guys who would n- not only tell me their best players, but who they thought were the best players. A lot of the recruiting was on the phone at that time, sure. as well as some in person. And then in Chicago, you know, the same thing. I got to know uh, Charlie Ficus's dad, Champion, who was uh, one of the top guys with the clubs. And uh, he would tell me, because they played each other. Sure. And he was the one who recommended Angelo DiBernardo to me as well. So that was a Sparta club in Chicago. So you're putting these teams together. You become a varsity sport in 1972. And like you said, it wasn't that much longer, 76, that you make your first Final Four, your first College Cup, and you make the final game. 73 was our first varsity year. Oh, 73, first varsity year. You were yeah. a club sport through 72. Right. 73. 76, you make the big time. You're in the final game against San Francisco with a team of like 45-year-old grown men. <laughs> um, so talk us through just what you remember from that first experience making it to that level. Gosh. That was in Philadelphia uh, where they in the stadium where they hold the pen relays. It was AstroTurf. It was colder than all get out. It was freezing cold. And I remember Clemson was there as well, mostly all internationals, and San Francisco, pretty much all internationals. And there was no age limit at the time in, in NCAA sport. And, I mean, they had men <laughs> on their team. It, it really was men and boys at that time with uh, – with, uh, San Francisco, especially. I mean, we are talking about people that are like 30. Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, is, yeah, late 20, 30. They played professionally in their countries of origin. Well, un, uh, yeah, no as tell. a matter of fact, when, when we lost in 1980 to San Francisco, we lost in 76, 78. It was 78, I'm sorry. Yeah. We lost three times to them. And in 78... The title was taken away from them because they did have professional uh-huh. players and they were caught. It wasn't given to us. Well, it was just vacated, they vacated. because they beat other to. teams along the way. Yeah, sure. and you don't it, want a title that way. No, we don't. On, so yeah. it's vacated. Right. But that's an example of what we were dealing with at the time. Well, just just getting into this run of of three championship games and three losses <laughs> to your kryptonite, San Francisco. <laughs> I guess the the two parts of the question I have is 
was there any was there any part of you at any point that was just like we're just we're not going to get over the hump <laughs> but more importantly what did you learn in in uh, just getting beat again and again and again by this one team that ultimately got you over the hump and became i mean the greatest soccer program well, in, in history you know they were uh, there was a minnesota football coach who couldn't win the big one and I was referred to as you're the someone, and I can't remember his oh, name. the Vikings head coach? Yes, way back when, back in those days. And yeah. Like when Tarkenton yeah, was, the, Tarkenton. Yeah. was the quarterback? Was and, it Bud something? It could have been. Yeah. I, I can't remember. Anyway, can't win a big one, coach. Oh, you know, uh, it started to think, wow, we get there, but we don't, we don't win the championship. You know, it's three times, three times against the same team. Uh, it was wearing. It was a little, little bit of a concern for sure. And we were better than them, and not in '76. They were better than we were. '78, we were closer, but still not. But in '80, when we lost to them the third time, we were the better team and should have won based on the run of play. But I'll give them credit for the first two. But in '80, we should have won, and that I knew after that we could we could win national champ. We would get there. So obviously you're at the pinnacle here. You're right there. You're at the precipice of winning that title. And then an opportunity comes to you in 1982 where the professional ranks come to you and you have an opportunity to move on and coach the best players in the world, you know, and or some of the best players in the world, at least best players in America. What was that process like for you? How seriously did you consider it? And ultimately... Why did you stay in Indiana? That's a very, very good question, and it was an interesting time. If Montreal, it was Montreal that, oh, that okay. entertained me. We visited twice, Marilyn and I. We looked at everything up there, and if they had given me two weeks, I would have been gone. The money was much, much more than I was making at Indiana, and the thought of being a professional coach was intriguing as well. They did not give me a time limit, and the longer I had to wait, the more that halo sort of disappeared, and I got to reality and realized that I love working with these 18, 17, 18-year-old green kids who come in and become men. That's, that's where I really enjoy, and if I'm coaching in Montreal, I'm coaching internationals who aren't probably going to respect this young American coach that much. I'm going to have GMs and owners, and there wasn't a lot of stability. And I, and I also, I just felt Indiana University was, and Bloomington, we were, to raise our children, that was also became an important part of the decision. And it became very clear to me that over time, when you when I had the time and I could list the pros and the cons and quality of life and things like that, it was a clear choice. Okay, but I just got to know, how much more money were they offering? Was it significantly more money? Well, in those days. Yeah, sure. In those days, it was signif significantly yeah. more. I mean, it's an but, amazing thing. But we were, well, now let me tell you, say this. We were just, at the time, also starting to get the Indiana soccer camp going. Uh, and the Indiana soccer camp, I said, 
if I can build this, that's my, that's my supplement. And we became the largest and the most popular soccer camp in the country. Well, how many kids would come through those soccer We camps would have there? four weeks of 600. Holy cow. And do it right That's what here? we built. Recreational fields, yeah. athletic fields, football fields. And would you have your players be counselors? Oh, yeah. Well, mostly coaches. coaches. Players, okay. players were counselors in the dorm or demonstrators. Got it. Demonstrators of skill. But mostly it was other coaches, college, uh, club, a few high school coaches. Um, were you able to use that? I know like basketball camps and things like that. That is a way assistant coaches get more money. Is there a Absolutely. That, it was sure a way I was able to help my assistant coaches. Yeah. Uh, way I was able to help myself For sure. and Marilyn to, to, because I was making, in the end, I was making much more money from the camp than I was from IU. Right in the end when we got it to the pinnacle and we used it for recruiting yes. it became a very important recruiting cool tool because we would the players who were on the horizon who we were thinking about come let us see you for a week let us let you be on a team that's uh in our camp that's coached by one of our coaches here at iu those kinds of evaluations became more and more important so you decide to stay here in Bloomington. I think everybody is really glad you made that decision. And you had unfinished business, didn't realize how much unfinished business you had. Um, so let's get to that first championship, uh, beating the, the Duke Blue Devils, which is nothing sweeter than beating <laughs> Duke in a championship game for Hoosiers. Um, can you just take us through your memory of that team and, and really that even that moment when you realize we finally did it, we are the best in the country, we got a trophy to prove it. You, you'd been there twice before as a player, but now there as a coach. Just take us through what you remember and how it felt. And, and just quickly for context, the same year that you have turned down the professional opportunity, <laughs> right? So you turn that down and now you're coaching. And, and both Eric and Ward, both of you, that was also a part of the decision. I hadn't climbed the mountain. I mean, I'd climbed the mountain, but I hadn't gotten to the mountaintop. Right, yeah. Put it that way, and I, I am and was very competitive and just felt I wanted to win a, a championship, and I did have other pro offers later. But that year, 82, when we won the championship against Duke, and I don't want to disparage Duke because John Rennie, very good friend and very good colleague and very good coach, uh, they had a great team. But that game was it was the longest game played in a, at that time in the NCAA. Eight, eight overtimes. Eight overtimes. <laughs> As a matter of fact, we had to shorten the overtimes because we started that game in Fort Lauderdale at 7.30, and it wasn't finished till after 11. We, the players were at risk. You know, they wouldn't allow that to happen again today. I mean, we were, they were dehydrated cramping all over the place uh the coaches had to go to the restroom so that was one of the reasons <laughs> where between the overtimes we we had, we had to say give us a few extra minutes That's great. well and it wasn't there even talk uh, uh, of potentially just saying hey should we just share this ward 
there was. As a matter of fact, my assistant coach, Donnie Rawson, and Ken Chartier, the assistant from Duke, they were got together. They were good buddies, too, and they were talking about it. And Donnie comes back to me and says, what do you think, Coach? Let's, let's call it co-champions and John over there. And both of us sort of. John was close and both said, no, no way. <laughs> I we, think there was a couple other words. In yeah, there, there could <laughs> have been a couple other words, too. We're going to see this to the end. It and uh, when when we scored when when that goal was scored by Thompson, uh, it was just you. I can't explain the feeling because having been there and having lost <clears throat> in final moments and scoring on sudden victory yes. in overtime, uh, it was euphoric. I'll say that and. Uh, Greg had to come out of the game for cramping. He's a defender. And he said, Coach, I don't know how many times to put him in and back out. He said, Coach, I can't, you know, I don't trust me back there in the back. I may go down. And I said, well, how about going up front? And he said, yeah. So I sent a defender, Greg Thompson, one of the best players on our team, to a forward position. And sure enough, he gets fouled on a spin move that they that he was going to go in he gets fouled and he makes the free kick to win the championship well that was ironic so the wake of winning a national championship you talked a little bit about when you went from club to varsity it didn't really change all that much when you win a championship does it change <laughs> oh lots of things changed after <laughs> we win the championship you're right all of a sudden everybody's our friend yeah. you know <laughs> Everybody, what do you need? Right. What do you want? What can we do for you? And, uh, you know, you're the toast of the town. They come up and give you the, uh, take you to the state house. You, you get to meet the president. You fly to New York, uh, to uh, Washington. I mean, it's... it's. You, you uh, met Reagan no, when you won in 82? Uh, no, we met... Uh, who was it? Who was our chair? No, I didn't meet Reagan. No, but we did go to Washington. I know. Uh, well, Todd did too with his twelve team. Sure, sure. And so did. Gosh, I can't remember which team that yeah, won the championship. Incredible. He won so many championships. I can't remember. I, I can't remember. It was Bush. Oh, it was okay. Bush. Okay. It was Bush. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. All right. So you're the toast of the town. You're enjoying the fruits of, of your labor. The hardest thing everybody says in sports is the year after winning because everybody's coming for you. And granted, you were a great team before and a great program, but there's nothing like the bullseye of the champion. And 1983, you've got that. Do you remember at all thinking about that and and how do we defend this and what is the message I need to deliver the team that's different this year than when you're trying to win the first one? That's a good point. I think it was more now we know we can do it. We are here. We know we have that monkey off our back. We're champions. We return most of the team that won the, the championship the year before. We play in 83, and we win. Uh, we beat, uh, it was a Columbia, 1-0. Mm -hmm. I'll never forget it. And uh, Pat McGauley, our forward from St. Louis, had, hadn't scored in seven games. 
And I kept telling him, you know, it'll come, it'll come, it'll come. And sure enough, he slid, put his body on the line on a cross that came in and slid and tapped it in for our 1-0 win uh, against Columbia. That uh, that was something. And in 84, we, we should have won. That, that, yeah. that was the best of all three. Really? And we played in the championship game out in uh, Seattle in the Kingdome. And <clears throat> we went out there, and we knew we were going to be on turf. So we took our turf shoes, our sambas, our flats, mm. and we trained the night before the game, just a short period in our sambas. We were doing great. And that night, after we trained at that football lines, of course, they used a, a solvent, a grease solvent, to remove the football lines for TV for our game the next day. Well, that solvent was all over that surface and we were like on ice skates we were and don rawson who had been my past assistant was working for adidas and he got clemson or he got the the team yeah it was clemson team we were playing in the type octopus type uh soles that didn't slip on that surface they were in. They had the right kind of shoes for a wet surface. We didn't bring our wet surface shoes. We had a bag full of them that we could have brought. And I remember saying, we're not going to need those. We're going to be under a dome indoors. So at halftime, we had guys changing into Chuck Taylor uh, Converse because uh, they wouldn't slip, sizes too big. Mm. Uh, and it was just... It was sad because that was such a great team. What a shame. Any game, let alone a championship, decided because of some equipment yeah, issue. Yeah, yeah. It, it, that was part of it. I don't want to take anything away from Clemson. They won the championship. No, we'll take it away from yeah, you. But you, you guys can. But we were, we were certainly not at our best All because, right. because of that. I, I wonder about the competitive nature of coaches, particularly greatest coaches of all time. Now, Coach Knight, he was up – 2-0 in national championships to you before you got your first, but then you quickly tie the score. <laughs> was there ever any good-natured ribbing or competition between you and Coach Knight about who had the most national titles? No. We would play golf together and have friendly ribbing, <clears throat> and we would play tennis, doubles tennis together. Really? On the yes. same team? What's that? On the same team? No, no. Against each other. No, he had David Bliss. You oh. remember Dave Bliss? Yeah, sure. His assistant. He Once and Dave family, right? would play against Jerry Tardy, Tardy Center here, and myself in tennis until one day <laughs> I'm up at the net and all, and Bobby misses a shot and takes a racket and throws it as hard as he can like a machete and it hits the tape, the nape of the net right where I am. I said, that's it. We're not playing any more tennis, Bobby. That was the last time we played doubles tennis. Who won more <clears> games <throat> when you played against each other? Uh, we, we, were, we, we were pretty even. We split. It was a good competition. But we, you talk about he, a competitor, yeah, Bobby. And uh, I'll tell you, I saw more, more helicopter <laughs> clubs in, in golf when we were at golf outings. I mean, he got several stuck up in trees or... <laughs> Over on the next fairway, Bob, and I was a great competitor, too. Yeah. I maybe didn't show it quite as much in those situations, but I love Bob. He was, was he was one of a kind. Who was the better golfer? 
He was. Really? No, Bobby was a better. I was never a great guy. I was a 10 at best. Okay. And uh, Bobby, I don't know if you ever saw the outtakes on, oh, yeah. on uh, Bobby's golf. But Bobby, he had multiple mulligans. I mean, uh, Bobby missed a shot. There's a ball out of the pot. Here we go. Well, th- this is the first I've ever heard of Coach Knight playing tennis. And at his size, I would figure that he'd have a pretty good serve. He'd be hard to get around at the net, right? None of us were really that good yeah. at tennis. It was more uh, recreational fun competition, yeah. if you know what I mean. Yeah, wow. Incredible. So which ring do you wear? I see you're wearing a championship ring. For this is from year. the last year. And do you this rotate is from the my... rings, or do you only wear this one? I don't rotate them much. I have... But this one was from my last year, and it was, uh, you know, in that special. way special. Well, we're going to get to that. But before we do, you win again in 1988, so you're now three championships in. But then... Wait, I, I feel like we should get one memory from each title. Oh, okay. So let's talk about the 88 championship, because now you're five years in between. You've won back-to-back titles in 82 and 83. You think you should have won in 84. And now it's a bit of a, a stretch, four years before winning uh, another one. What do you remember from that time and then leading into the 88 championship? Well, I remember uh, we didn't do very well right after that 84 group left. It was a great senior class. So in 85 and 86, uh, we really we struggled quite a bit. And then all of a sudden, we got Kenny Snow, mm-hmm. who as a freshman in 87 scored 20-some goals, led the nation, player of the year. I mean, and I knew that we have a special piano carrier, player <laughs> here. And it just so happened in 88 that they changed the rules of the Final Four. They would wait to see who made the Final Four and then choose what site to host the Final Four. And you had to bid. And IU had great attendance. That was part of it. How's your attendance record? And are you willing to make a bid to get to host the Final Four? We hosted the 88 Final Four right here on our field. And we had a team, very honestly, guys, and I don't want to, again, disparage the players. I didn't think... We had Kenny Snow, but I didn't think that team was a top 10 team, maybe not a top 20 team overall, but a team that overachieved. And in that Final Four, every player had their A game, both in the semifinal and and in the final, or we would not have won. But back up a little bit, because I'm curious, why did that team overachieve? I mean, you've got to get to the Final Four first. You've got to get to the College Cup. Why do you, what was it about that team that you think allowed them to overachieve throughout the season? Well, again, we had an outstanding goal scorer that, you know, if you can count on a goal or two from one player, and uh, that was Kenny, we were not the best team defensively. It was one of our, what I considered to be not one of our better defensive teams. We gave up goals. And <clears throat> when we came, uh, we were fortunate to get to the Final Four as well. And when we got here, we're facing, uh, gosh, Shaka Hislop, who went on to play in the Professional League Premiership, uh, the goalie uh, from Portland, 
also played in the premiership. I can't think of his name. It's not coming to me right now. And Jurgen Sommer, our goalie, we had a very good goalie mm-hmm. that was part of it too, that we were able to overcome some things. He he kept us in and kept Kenny kept us scoring. So here we are. We beat Portland in a in a one oh game in a very, very hard game. And Shaka Hislop and Howard, everybody's saying, Well, they killed South Carolina. They 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 just demolished them and they're so much more skillful than you. They have these international players, and you had a rough time with Portland. How? What are you going to do? How are you, you going to compete with them? And that was one, one of our thoughts. Well, it wasn't one of them. It was, okay, with this team, they want to play tic-tac. Tic-tac soccer. They don't want. They won't play long. They want to hold possession. We're going to compress the field. We're going to force them out of their comfort zone and force them to play over the top and see what happens. And sure enough, so, uh, they came out. Howard came out and insisted on trying to play in our midfield which was now compressed and they couldn't do it they became frustrated and our guys were just having like i said their a games and doing what we do and pressuring and taking them out of their comfort zone we scored on a penalty kick won the national championship on our own field with a against a very very talented howard team with a great crowd Oh, I'm sure. it was packed. How great was packed. it to just win and celebrate at home. with Hoosiers at it, home? It was. It was the only time, of course, that we had that opportunity because right. the NCAA stopped that. They only did it for two or three years. And uh, to, to win a championship on your home field in front of your home crowd, uh, it was something. I became, uh, what, what is it, uh, Sagamore of the Wabash, which wow. the governor yes. is, is the highest award that you can get. I got my second Sagamore after that win. Wait, you already had one? I did. What? You get, when did you get it? After the first championship? Yeah, I did. That's great. That I said incredible. it took us to the state house. They had, but you won so many, they had to be like, listen, we can't do this every time you win <laughs> Well, I win it at home. You so know. I, before the next championship, it, there's a big gap here between 88 and 90 I say big gap 10 years between national championships everybody would kill for that but there's something that happens in that era that I think is maybe the most important of your coaching career which is your son plays for you he did from 91 to 94 here comes Todd to play for you at Indiana talk to us about what it's like coaching your son at your school with the program that you have built it was it was uh, again a special time for me, and I'll never forget the first game when he was standing out there and they're playing the national anthem. I'm looking out there and seeing my son in an IU uniform, and it gave me such a wonderful feeling. Now, Todd, he was a four-time All-American, so there was no question that he should be on the field. I would not have wanted him to play here and for me and have the pressure if he were average or good it would not have been a good good feel for me. And I, we've had a couple coaches who who had their kids play for them who well, maybe were ex- At the same exact time. Well, Coach Knight has Pat Knight playing, playing for him. And Pat, we love Pat Knight. And he's a great guy. And he busted his ass. But I think even Pat would say he was out kicking his coverage a little bit playing for the Indiana basketball team. 
but your son is a baller. I mean, he, he is. is really a baller. And Patrick, heck of a guy. He, as a matter of fact, he and Todd played some youth soccer together. Oh, is that right? Yeah, and Nancy, together, his right? mom, was a great soccer fan. She would come to all the games and travel to our games. So uh, Todd, and, and to be an All-American at three different positions, wow. as a forward, as a freshman, we had to move him to the back in his sophomore year. He played uh, as a sweeper, and then his final two years he played in midfield. And he was a very, very versatile player. Went on to play pro for seven, eight years. And uh, he uh, he worked hard, and he loved, you know, growing up, I was worried that he might have too much soccer, mm -hmm. that he might become stale, that he might not. But I never, there was never a time where I heard him say, I don't want to go out and kick. Mm -hmm. He was always, whether, and he loved being around our players. They, they would make fun of him. They would play tricks on him. They'd tape him to a chair on a trip and put him on the elevator and send him down to the <laughs> lobby. I mean, yeah, he had more tricks by our players. They loved him, but he, he, he loved being part of the IU soccer family and was from the time he, he could kick a ball. Well, and what's the dynamic like? Because obviously you, you see him growing up playing youth soccer. I'm sure you're giving him some tips and some advice, but you're not his coach. So in this stretch of time you are, how, how much, if at all, does it change your relationship? Do you really leave it on the pitch or in the locker room and then you go home and have dinner and, and it's separate? Does, does mom-wife have to play mediator and referee some of the time? How did you make that work as father and son? Oh, you're right. I did not coach him as a youth player. I watched very carefully, and I very carefully picked his coaches who were, <laughs> who were going to work with him. And I give John Trask so much credit because he worked with him individually. Uh, John was a coach at Wisconsin and played here as well. A great player, but a very, very good coach. Anyway, Marilyn... She was there. She was her boy, you know. They were there attached, you know. I had to be very, very careful in terms of how, and I was tougher on him than I was on the other players, and I felt I had to be to show no favoritism. Right. But I was fortunate that he was such a good player, and he, he was an honest player. He did things right, and he loved playing and I didn't have to get on him that much. So I only bring this up because the story has an ultimate happy ending with Todd, of course, and, and what he does for Indiana. But you don't win a national title with your son here. Did that um, stick in your craw? <laughs> was that, was oh. that like, I mean, every year you don't win a title, of course, is a year you don't reach the pinnacle. But your son's there, and he doesn't get to walk away with one of those. How did you process that? <laughs> I'm still not processing it properly, <laughs> Harry. That was one of my most disappointing times. And, and because Todd was there and because we were the best team in the country, right. we were ranked number one in his junior year as well. We lost to Wisconsin in a game where they carried deck their goalie away on their shoulders because he stood on his head and played. So we dominated. We we should have won then as a junior and then as a senior playing Virginia down at Davidson and we were robbed of a we should have had a penalty kick in the in an early early going it was obvious uh it, it really hurt sure. not winning uh with Todd and I know this I know Todd has never watched that tape he's never watched really? that film uh because he's told me 
and uh, we had, you know, yes, we have six national championships, but I can name four teams where we were the best team in the country and didn't win the championship, and that happens. But I also mentioned the 88 team was perhaps not the best team right, in the right. country, yeah. and we won. But I blame those on my assistant coaches. We should have <laughs> had about 10, 10 or 12. Well, and, and speak to how much really luck it, it does factor into it, whether it be through injuries or a ref looking the wrong way or, or just not liking you Or that a much. solvent being used on the turf. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It so, happens. So well, I'll been, go back to the one with the ref, uh, English ref. I won't mention his name. Uh, in that game at Davidson against Virginia in the final when Bannister, our forward, was going to goal all alone. Their defender came in behind him, took out his legs, never touched the ball in the penalty area, and there was nothing called. The crowds, the noise was, I mean, it was obvious. Later, after that game, and we lost 1-0. After that, that player should have been red carded, and we should have had a penalty kick. After the game, I saw the English ref in the airport, mm. and I wasn't exactly very happy <laughs> at the time. And I confronted him, and he said, Jerry, it was way too early in the game to make that call. And I wanted to just deck that guy. Oh, my. Yeah, I remember that. It was in the first five minutes of the game. All right, so listen. You don't know this about Ward and I, but there is the thought that when we show up for basketball games, men's team, women's team, we've actually been to some soccer games. They lose when we're in attendance. Like, like they were winning when we showed up. Yes. Or like at home, we're yes. like, oh, this is great. We can't ruin this. That is, they lost. Uh, that is a label and a, and, a, and a phenomenon that we have to deal with. However, Ward and I come to Indiana one year apart from each other. And it just so happens that it's one of the most successful times in the history of Indiana <laughs> soccer. We win the title in 1998 and 1999 when both Ward and I were here as students. And we should have won in 97. That was the best I of remember the three that. teams. Look at that. So yeah. again. talk to us about what you remember. It's now a decade since your last championship. Todd has come and gone. It's been a few years. And you have now reloaded. And walk us through 1998-1999. I'd like to walk through 97. First. Please do. Please do. 1997, Indiana University wins more games than any team has ever won. 23. 23 in a row. We go to the Final Four. We play UCLA in the semifinal. Their goalie has the most saves that he's had in any game all year. We have the most shots that we've had in any game all year. And we lose 1-0 in overtime in a game that we completely dominated. Heartbreak. That one hurt. And that was I, – I never would say one team is the best of all the teams I've coached because there are so many championship teams, so many good teams, but that was certainly one of the very best. And we returned a lot of the guys, and they were on a mission. They knew that we should have won that game in 97 and they were committed i've never had a group more committed 
and we killed them in, in <laughs> 98 and 99. There was no question who was the best team and who should be champion. And those were the guys who most of them were there in 97 when, when we didn't win it. That should have been the trifecta. I thought 84, we should have had the trifecta. But anyway, that was, uh, that was a tremendous run. Do you think losing in 97 pushed that team to be better than it w would have been otherwise, to, to, to go and have that extra motivation, that chip on their shoulder, really took them to another level than even their talent would have allowed if they didn't have that, that burning fire? Uh, I, there's no doubt about that, Ward. I really think they were, as a group, as I said, committed and worked so hard and so determined the talent was there, and uh, rather than being frustrated, they just took such pride. But, uh, you know, as you mentioned before, sometimes when you win a championship, not only are you the target of everybody else, but you can take your foot off the pedal and say, we've arrived, we've won the championship, we can take it easy. I don't remember any of our championship situations when we won where the team took that attitude that and uh, that was part of leadership from coaches but it was also a very important leadership from the team and I always felt that if I could get a team to the point where I look out there on the field and say they own this team this is their team they've taken ownership then I knew we could win and you can't have that unless you have leaders on the field who are going to hold not only themselves accountable but every other player on the team and when you have players who are more concerned about upholding a standard for a teammate or as much concerned as they are for a coach you have a championship caliber team in contention mm. i'm going to ask another question that's going to be difficult because you're such a humble uh guy talking about yourself but you win in 98 99 you now have five national championships that that you've won you've been at indiana at this point for 30 years 20 years as a you know more 20 years 26 years as a varsity sport you are the greatest of all time at this point you started in a little office you know washing underwear and uniforms and recruiting guys that had station wagons, and now you've got a bunch of national championships and widely considered by everyone the best program in the country, the best coach in the country. How do you handle that personally and stay grounded? How are you aware of your own place in the sport? Because you're not just the coach of Indiana at this point. You are the most important person in collegiate soccer. And you're a big part of the population or the, the popularity of the game growing over the decades that you've been coaching. Do you recognize that as it's happening? And how do you stay this humble person, likable, that you've been the entire time? Well, that's very flattering of you to uh, lay that out in that way, Eric. I think when you win a championship and you're a competitive person there's nothing that you want more than to win another one <laughs> it's the ice cream tastes good but you want more yeah. it it drives you at least it did me 
it did me, and I wanted every team to be a championship-caliber team. And I never felt we've achieved the ultimate or I've, you know, achieved whatever personally. Uh, I, I always wanted to do better. I always wanted to do more. And uh, that was my driving inner you just stay true to that path. Like, yeah. just focus on that. Well, yeah. and there's no better analogy for Eric than ice cream. I think you really nailed that. <laughs> I get, now I understand what you're talking about. <laughs> um, and I have to imagine the decade of not even being recognized or even really formally supported by the athletic director as a varsity sport. I mean, that, that, keep, that kind of makes you oh. who you are, right? Oh. I always say, without those club years, we would... I would not be the coach I am. Mm. Our program would not be the program it is. And those were the m extremely important years in, in terms of building the foundation, uh, those pioneers who laid that structure. And when we had to, we couldn't outplay teams because we didn't have that much talent, but we could outwork them and we could take them out of their comfort zone and we could force them to become frustrated. And we, we followed those things when we got players who were as good or better than our opposing teams. And we've held that true ever since. And now it's the twilight of your career at Indiana. When did you make the decision that the 2003 season was going to be the last season. That's an interesting one. Uh, I made it before the season. I made it at the end of the 2002 season. I announced it ahead right. of time. But what was This it? will be my last year. Why? How did you know? I had seen, unfortunately some of my best colleagues in coaching, whether it was at IU or in, in soccer, stayed too long. I knew it was the right time. I didn't want to stay too long. I didn't want to, Mel Lorback was an example, my college coach and others I don't want to mention, stayed too long who were at the top at one time and ended up right. being asked to leave or having, having to leave. And I felt this was the, this was the right time for me. And I, I knew it was going to be a tough year because we lost so many people. Yeah. And I knew that 23 was probably not going to be a championship caliber team because we were having at least five or six new starters. I, I want to ask just because, and, and forgive me if this is one of the people you didn't want to mention, but you were here when Coach Knight got fired. This is a guy that you were with for over two decades. And it was awful. It was a terrible time for the entire university. It was. Because Coach Knight, of course, transcended his sport. What do you remember from that time? And did that play any part in, in you? It, it did, and Doc did too. Yeah. Because Doc, who had won so many championships, stayed on and didn't leave in the best, you know, in the, in the twilight. Sure. Uh, and, and with Bobby, the same thing. And I... Those were certainly part of my decision-making, but my also colleagues in soccer sure. uh, as well. And uh, I uh, and, and Mel, who I was very, very close to, my college coach, who we became great, great friends to see him become a bitter person toward the end mm -hmm. in some ways in his profession when he had won a national championship and been on top. 
uh, I didn't want to go there. So the Hollywood guys here, the Hollywood ending that you provided to your own career and and for the 2003 season, which you just alluded to, maybe didn't have the greatest expectations for with all the turnover. So I, I think... I think in the movies, the way we would imagine it is like, well, we got to do this one for Coach. <laughs> you you know, know. We got to send Coach <laughs> out on top. Talk to us about the reality of how you went ahead and, and integrated all those new players, shaped them into what they would become, and, and then we're going to go in and talk about this just majestic final game <laughs> for you. It was funny. Uh, finding the lineup getting the right combination, getting the chemistry right. Uh, Jed Zayner is an example. Jed at the time I had asked to be our center back. And in an early game against Akron, Jed made a back pass that they intercepted and scored. Jed was a freshman. Jed, after the game, came up to me in tears and said, Coach, I can't play there anymore. I can't play there. I can't, I, you know, the pressure and the expectations. So working psychologically with him, he became a great player. As a matter of fact, he became a pro, and he did play there, but we had to work through that. Uh, we won two of our first nine games. Yeah. Two, three, and four to start. <laughs> Your and worst start. that doesn't count two exhibitions that we didn't win as well. Really? And you like... I should have quit last year. You're quoted, uh, you're quoted as saying, after that start, maybe I stayed a year too uh, let me get Let me get to that. <laughs> That's true. Uh, I was getting phone calls from my colleagues and alums and say, Coach, don't worry about this year, you know. <laughs> Look at all the championships <laughs> and everything. Don't worry. I'm getting notes and, uh, you know, feeling sorry for me. Two wins. You didn't like that. <clears throat> We played against, I think it was Butler. And after that game, I let the players in the locker room for a period of time. I didn't go in to the locker room. And then after five minutes or so, because I knew they were going to be very, I walked in, their heads were down, and I said, guys. And they all looked up, and I said, I think I stayed a year too long and walked out of the locker room. And... What I've learned and heard later from the players who were in there, that it was one of those moments. One of those moments where, guys, we're going we're gonna to get this. I mean, they came, they got so, there was some kicking and uh, trash cans and there was some expletives that were going on in that locker room where they, you know, they, it was come to Jesus moment where they were deciding that they weren't going to send me out as a loser. And I give the credit to the players for what happened after. We didn't lose a game after that. You won 14 in a row. We didn't lose a game. But, but just to be clear, when you went in and said that and walked back out, you knew what you were doing. I had hoped it might have an right. impact. It might have an effect. But I still believed in that team. I knew even though we had only won two, we had played well and we were playing better every game. And I felt that this team was worthy of some pretty good stuff. Winning a championship at that point, <laughs> uh, I had to bet my house on it. I don't think I would have. But <clears throat> I also 
felt that we could win and play with anyone. Besides the players, didn't you have an assistant coach that year that was important to you? Wasn't Todd back? Todd was with me for one year. That year? That year. So let's talk about St. John's. It's the title game. It's snowing. I mean, it's majestic. It's just everything you could hope for. Tell us about that game. We've seen the video. (laughs) It it seems like there is a weight. I mean, I'm getting goosebumps right now just talking about it. There is just a gravity to what's going on in that game. Walk us through that experience. Well, the game had so many side bars to it. Uh, Ned Grabavoy and Drew Moore left after we won the Big Ten and went with the national team to Australia. And as they left, we said together, we'll see you in the champ- at the championship game. They weren't going to be able to play with us. And our wow. top attacker, top defender, didn't play with us in the NCAA tournament leading up to that final game. Drew got there the morning of the game back from Australia. Ned got there the night before. Should we start them? Should they play right away? They've just been on an airplane for all this period of time. I started both of them. Ned scored the only free kick he scored all year. And Drew played the full 90. Ned couldn't make a 90. But Drew played the full 90. And what a stud defender he was. Uh, That was a a little sidebar uh, to that game. Davey Mazur from St. John's. His daughter now plays here at IU. As a matter of fact, Sydney, a very good player. We have a birthday on the same day. Oh, wow. We had played another championship games against each other. I highly respect him so much. And, uh, you know, after the game was over, he, he was a great competitor, but he wanted to win. But he came up and gave me a hug and said, congratulations. If anybody I could lose to or I wanted to win, it was you. He was such a gentleman. And I remember after the game, uh, again, a euphoric moment, uh, I was speechless, and rarely am I speechless. And I've been you know, interviewed time and time again throughout my career, I had been, and this gal, I forget who it was, yeah. on TV, came up to me and asked me, you know, how do I feel or what are your thoughts? And when I, I went, you know, so much was racing, racing through my mind, back to the club days, back to so many yes. of the teams, so many of the players, uh, and just how grateful I was to have been able to be the caretaker do you remember what you said? You said, right now I'm numb. I don't remember that's that. That's what you said. It. Right after you shook hands with the St. John's coach, you turned around and Todd's there. Gives you a big hug. Oh, yeah. I mean. That was special. What? Yeah. Well, we hadn't you won one the, when he played, yes. and that was hurt so much. And we both said we finally got our championship together. Yes. <sighs> Amazing. Storybook. Storybook ending. And now your career as a coach is over. Did any part of you after you won that title go, wait a minute, <laughs> maybe? Because next year's team was really good too. And again, for the third time in your tenure, you win back-to-back championships, which I think just speaks again to this amazing... Yeah, it was the same players. Yes. Pretty much, I think we were Did the same team. Did any part of you regret retiring? No. You knew it was time. I can't. No, I can't say that. <laughs> I can't say that. Uh, there were times, 
and certainly that next year when that group won, I still felt I was part of it. I was connected to that team. They were my boys, and they came up and gave me the trophy after the game, handed it to me as part of it. But Mike Freitag did a great job as my assistant, and he helped lead that team to a championship. But anyway, Todd and Todd continued on in the coaching staff. Uh, there were times when I felt maybe I should have, but, and that was short. Those times were short, and those thoughts were short. And I, the, the thought of retiring at the right time always came to the fore, mm. that it was the right time, and I'm glad I did it. I mean, there are times in games since then when I say, gosh, I might have done that a little different. <laughs> I might have, but right. there are a few times that I say that. And again, now with Todd coaching, and he's so much better, like I said, and so much had so much more experience internationally, professionally, so on. And the game has evolved so much. It was much easier for me to win at my time than it is now. The parity is there. Uh, we had, you know, a number of very, very good teams, but now there are no bad teams, and right. you can lose on any day. And it's wonderful for the sport. Sure. Because there are so many good players coming through now. you I mean, you could pick, pick a dork or two team that you were going to really beat in my time and point to half a dozen that these are going to be our tough games. That's not the case anymore. Well, and it must, I think in any case, where you've you've really given birth to the program and it's your child and it's your baby, but then when your actual son is the head coach and becomes the head coach i just have to imagine that there's so much pride and still ownership in that program but yet you don't have to work quite as hard <laughs> so it, 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 has that has that been really like fun for you to well i guess it is how much of it is is a fun and it's joy for you and how how stressful is it for you when your son's out there with the program you built and it's a tough game you had to bring that up Ward. <laughs> <clears throat> I'm a, a bit ashamed and embarrassed to say that the anxiety that I feel now is much I, – I, when you're coaching, you're in it. Right. And the, there are certain types of stress. And so, but you're working with your players and your assistants and, you know, yelling at refs, what have you. I have to internalize everything now, and it's my son. And – I can't go to the games. Wow. Uh, you guys say you show up and now you lose us. I was sitting over there in that press box on the other side in one of Todd's first years, and all of a sudden we fell behind in the game. It was against Northwestern. It was a Big Ten uh, tournament time. And I got a, a rush of anxiety and I had to leave the press box, and I got in my car and drove. <laughs> and I didn't know what the outcome was because we were be we were behind by two goals. We ended up winning three to two, and won the Big Ten championship. Todd did. Ever since then, I've not been at the games. Wow! How much <laughs> is it because of the the physiological reaction you had? How much of it is superstition? Well, I, I'm a jinx. The I'm a jinx part was the first part, but that was it at first. Uh, if I'm there, we're gonna we're not going to win. And then it became an overcoming anxiety where I 
okay, I'm going this year. I'm going to go to the games. I'll take, I've taken pills. I've taken <laughs> drinks of drinks, alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> I've tried everything to numb myself you know, to go out to the games. Let me just throw this out to you, Coach. Ward travels with a bag of stuff that might help you. In the future. I'm it's, just all, saying. it's all legal where we come from. I know. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> well, I'll talk to you later. Yeah, okay. Off camera. Off camera. <laughs> off camera. No. Uh, but anyway, I do get to see the games afterwards right away. They videotape yeah. them, and most all of them are on, uh, you know, internet. But do and you I, find out the outcome before you rewatch? Oh them? yes, you do. I can't. I can't watch it until I know the outcome. All right. And if I'm at the game, here, here's the thing, guys. If I'm sitting up here at the games, and I'm going through this anxiety and pain and discomfort and misery, it's not worth it. I mean, I, I, I don't enjoy it. Wow. And and if I can't enjoy watching the game after it's over and I know the outcome. I'm relaxed. Yeah. Okay, now, now I go. If they lose, and you, which doesn't happen often, but when they lose and you find out the outcome, do you still watch a loss? Oh, right away. You do because you want to analyze it. Sure, and talk sure, to I analyze it. it and I, yeah, yeah, so, and we have a process of how I find out. Oh, let's hear it. Marilyn goes to the games, and Marilyn calls me after the game, and I must wait, we must wait five minutes till the game's over. So she calls. So I know if the game went in, when we had overtimes and stuff, yes. if she if I didn't get a call, it's in overtime. I know what that. What are you doing? What do you do? You have a process or a, a routine that you do during uh, a game? I'm a, again. I'm a bit embarrassed about that. No, let's hear it. I sort of hibernate. I've even been known, especially at night games, to go to bed. You just go to sleep. And, well, and, I don't sleep. Right. But you uh, I sort of escape. Put it that way. And I still get a certain degree of anxiety and anticipation. But uh, this year I'm going to go to the games. I'm wow. going to try. I'm right. going to try. I'm just That's I'll tell you this right now. We'll see right. how we'll that works. Talk to Ward first. Mm-hmm. You know? I got you. I got some buddies, old card-playing buddies at the club who have encouraged me to yeah. try. Try. Hey, well, nature's medicine. <laughs> Um, I've never tried. We we talked about the the Hollywood would reject the script because it's got too much amazing stuff. There are storybook endings at multiple places within your story. Had it just been the eight overtime game and winning a championship, that's a storybook ending. Had it been Todd becoming an All-American and playing for you, that could be it. Had it been your last national championship in your last season? It's a trilogy, right? Because... But then there's a fourth. And the fourth is 2012. And Todd (laughs) wins his championship. Now, I don't understand... After hearing everything we just heard, I cannot wait to understand how you. Oh, I or well, they make the final four. I go to the games. You do okay. Ah, uh, then I'm. We've achieved. The, he's achieved. The, you know. You want what your was Sunday. that like for you? That championship game in 2012. Have you ever been more anxious? I've never been more proud and happy. Uh, yes. More so even than my victories. Uh, it was down in uh, uh, Alabama. Uh, Right outside of Huntsville, or where? What? Uh, what's the name of the suburb? I can't think of it right now. But anyway, I I remember it was like yesterday uh, after the game, and he came up to be interviewed, 
and they had me off in a little cubicle. They let me watch it uh, in in one of the, uh, what do they call them, suites, Got a it. small suite. And I'm watching, and I'm there by myself. Uh, actually, they had me come down at halftime of the game and interviewed me, as a matter of fact, and I, I was okay with that. And then after the game, when they've won, and Todd comes up to be interviewed, and he's seated up there, and I'm in the background a little bit, almost behind a drape, and I sort of move out of the drape, and Todd sees me, and he gets up, and he runs, and he gives me the biggest tug. That was really good. Is that the number one moment for you? That's one of them. Yeah, that's it's, and now and now we're ten years removed from that. And Todd has built again. Oh. It's just the best program in the country. He's won more games than any other coach in the in the time he's been coaching. Yes. In the last ten years, he's been to the final four more. He's got a little bit of a what I had, Bud Wilkinson. That's that's who yes. it was. Uh, yes. You know, can you get that win? <laughs> They've lost in overtime on penalty kicks and been the better team and not. But in terms of consistent excellence. There's no other program that comes close. No, and it, it's funny because when you came into the college soccer game, St. Louis was the team. Oh, they were by far. They had won the championship. But because of what you did, you have passed them. I mean, St. Louis is not what it was in large part. Because they haven't been they, in the Final Four since '74. Right? Indiana has <laughs> replaced them. We I'm have. Gonna, we have. We're, we've been there. Yeah. I'm very proud of of the consistency of excellence. We're not just a shot in the dark no. here and then back down there. It's but. it's 50 years of excellence. I mean, it is unprecedented, really, in college athletics. Look at look at any sport. Look at Alabama football with Saban retiring as the greatest of all time in college football. They had a big dip for years before Saban in 50 years. Indiana soccer has remained at the top of the game. It's pretty darn good. It's incredible. And before, go ahead. Well, I, I'm just always looking to the future. Um, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know. Uh, are there any grandchildren who yeah. are in soccer? <laughs> like, we need to keep this going for the next generation. Who's coming up under Todd to take the man? One of them just graduated, and Ben, who played and helped us get to the Final Four, He's now working down in Raleigh. He's a techno genius. He's in, what do they call it, uh, informatic engineering. Did he whatever study that, that here? Yes, in, in the yeah. informatic school. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's a brainiac. But the one on the team now, Grant, he's the coach. Oh, I like it. He's the coach. I don't know if he's going to do it, but he knows the game. He follows the game. Uh, he's... And he knows everything about the premiership and all the coaches and everything. And we have great discussions. He is not the player that Ben was. He loves wearing the uniform and being sure. on the team, but he's not going to be out there on the field. He has one more year. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Well, it is interesting that you mentioned he's so up to date with what's going on in the premiership and that the game globally is so much more accessible now to a kid growing up in Bloomington, oh Indiana, or in Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. you know, pre-internet, that, that you could even stay up late enough and watch a lot of these games live. So even though Todd got to go over there and play and experience all that, 
anybody invested at it now from from a young age really has access to all the best players and coaching in the world by turning on their TV or, they or do. laptop. It's, and it's a big reason for the growth of the game for our spectators and for our youth. They have international Messi heroes and Ronaldo and what I my son or my grandson Grant went over and spent three months in Spain mm. studying Spanish and also training over there. So he had the, he, he's like Todd went to France or to Italy and, you know, we'll see. But anyway, uh, I'm in a happy place. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm in the shadows. Uh, I still feel connected. Uh, it's, it, it, it's a wonderful twilight for me. One thing we love to do to take a quick detour with any of our guests, especially guests who have been in Bloomington as long as you have, we like to ask about certain Bloomington favorites. So I have to know, for somebody who's been here since the 60s, what's your favorite restaurant in Bloomington? Uptown. All right. Without oh. question. How often are you there? Often. Michael Cassidy, the owner. Yes. Soccer guy. He's a great guy. As a matter of fact, one of his sons uh, played for Todd. Uh, was on the team, uh, Lake Hubbard, he, he, his and hers kids for Michael. But that's my that's my favorite. What's your meal? What do you get? What's your order? Oh, gosh. They have, what they have is a, a little bit of a bite to their, uh, what do you call it? Uh, not, oh, I'll think of it here in a okay. minute. Right. Of, of, not the not the meal. Some I I love their crab cakes. Yes. Their their special meatloaf is a standard. They have a standard menu, and uh, they don't vary that much. But I that's where we had New Year's dinner, that's and great. I, I I had a sea bass that was out of this world, which they don't serve this that often. But no, that's that's our favorite. Uh, you know we we. Eat it number of different places but that's number uptown, one uptown all right okay uptown obviously has some great desserts but say, say yes they do say you're not having dessert there you got the sweet tooth going a little bit what's your favorite dessert in town outside of uptown you have an ice cream place anywhere else uh i'm not that much of a dessert guy uh you might think so i'd like to lose some pounds <laughs> but <clears throat> No, there's no special place or special dessert. All right. Well, uh, what about, do you like pizza? Oh, yes. Where's your favorite pizza place? Well, uh, Pizza X has been yes. very good for us. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and uh, they also serve the pizzas at camp as well. Yeah, there so. you go. Do you, do you, you were mentioning a little bit of a bite of something at, um, at Uptown. Do you like spicy? Do you like? Uh, mild spice. Because Mother Bear's pizza has a little bite to yeah, it, I find. It does. Mother, like. Mother Bear's does. But, oh, the word I was looking yeah. for was Cajun. Oh, they, have yeah, a, yeah. They, they have a Cajun touch to a number of their, yes. their dishes there at Uptown. Yeah, the jambalayas were really good. Yeah, it is. So you guys have been there, too. Oh, yeah. I love it. I love Uptown for breakfast. It's my favorite breakfast place, too. I think yeah, they have oh, incredible there, no breakfast. question. The holiday yes. sauce. No question. That French toast that oh, they have. Oh, my. And their sausage yeah, is just special. No, the, I, that's where I have my brunch meetings, late breakfast brunch, Uptown. Got I'll it. meet you there at 10, 1030. It's such a beautiful town, beautiful campus. Oh. Do, you, do you have a favorite spot? Let's, let's say it can't be the pitch. <laughs> Or the building that's named after you. 
Uh, I spent a lot of my time with my old buddies who can't golf anymore at the country club playing gin rummy and Chinese poker. There you go. So, uh, it's Chinese poker. Uh, it's hard to explain. Is it, is it with tiles or is it with cards? No, it's with cards. But it's yeah. just a different type of it's poker. A different How many kind. cards? You, you, they play it out in Vegas. Really? You get 13 cards. You have four, pl- four people playing. You use the whole deck. First, you have three, five, and five. Each one must be better. If you have a pair of aces, you must be better with your next. And you're better than your straight or your flush or your full here. And then wow. you bet each, you bet each hand. And so you're betting that your top one is better than somebody else's top one? Or, or so that you will ultimately. ultimately be better than they're all three. In other words, Got are you going to win two of them? See, I think I would, if I were, had the, uh, a son who was the coach, I would play Chinese poker during games. Because <laughs> the, if I just went to my bed... It would drive me crazy. I would <laughs> yeah. just think about it. Oh, what's happening right now? I know. I, d- I would need something. I do at times watch other games. Okay, I, if there are other games I can watch, or if I tape something, I try to watch that. But it's it's difficult for me until the game's over. Well, Coach, this has been just an absolute honor. I mean, we started this podcast in 2018 with the goal of talking to the people that have made Indiana what it is. And you are on the Mount Rushmore of athletic names at Indiana University. And in the sport of college soccer, you are the greatest. <laughs> and to know. be in your presence and to be able to talk to you and hear you tell your story, it, it is just such a pleasure and an honor. I'm so grateful to you for giving us this time. Thank you so much. Well, you both are very good at what you do. And I've had a lot of people interview me. You make it very easy and very enjoyable. And I may become a podcast viewer. I've not been a podcast viewer in the past. I'm not that, not that I don't, I've seen some, sure. but I'm going to become a podcast well, watcher. Well, then we better Once clean our week. game up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, maybe just start with this episode, yeah. and we'll try to do better moving forward. But, but Coach, it's not only been an honor and a privilege, it's been such a joy and a, a pleasure. You're, you're just so fun to be around and to, to regale us with these stories and these memories. It's, it's, such, a, it's such a delight, and I know not only for the people who are going to listen to this next week it's going to be wonderful but but to have all of this this oral history of what you've built and passed on to your son to continue um it it, we feel privileged that this is now something that people can go back and listen to at any point and understand how iu soccer got to be the absolute best program in the country Ward, that's very, very nice. And I'm going to look forward to seeing you in the movies, too. There we go. <laughs> yeah, me too. And when's that going to happen? <laughs> that was a guest. That was a guest. I mean. Greater we, coach or greater person? No, nah, the same. It's a tie. It's a tie. It's a tie almost like the championship with Duke, his first championship. <laughs> if it went to eight overtimes, I think you say greatest, great, greater coach because he just... He is the greatest of all time. Correct. And no matter how cool he is as a person, to be defined as that, the greatest to ever do it in your position, and then just still to be that cool, it's crazy. It's insane. Uh, So many things I took from it. Thinking about him washing underwear and jerseys in the club days and his wife doing it with him, to winning six national championships, to having his son do it. But the... 
two big revelations for me. Doubles tennis against Coach Knight <laughs> yeah. is awesome. And that that ended permanently because he was almost killed by Coach Knight's flying tennis racket. And he can't watch the games. Yeah. Like, the competitiveness, the love for your son, the anxiety that you feel. And I feel when, when Julian, like, does a play. Yeah. You know, when Stella played her first basketball game, you feel it. But this is a guy who's been at the highest levels, and he is still a human being and a dad. I love that. And they've got a process where Marilyn calls him. <laughs> like, I just, I love, I love everything about him and his family and what they have meant to Indiana. Well, and to be able to do this in person and, and to look into his eyes and, and like, okay, what, how does greatness take its, its form? And, and you look into his eyes and the level of, of passion and joy. Like, there's just so much joy and delight in there. And look, we were talking about football coaches and how a lot of the great football coaches not particularly pleasant Dicks. people. Yeah, really. Dicks. Truly. The, the, the greatest of all time just retired. Complete asshole. Dicks. So to have um, someone who who's just the, the the soul, the life force, the energy coming through him, it's it's contagious. And you just love to be in his presence. And I'm sure there were times that his players were like, maybe it wasn't pleasant because sure. things weren't going well. And, but, he, and you can be competitive as hell and still be that. Like, he, it comes in different forms. Yeah, so I, I just was like taken in by his his eyes and his his really his love. Oh, there, there he is, there he is right oh, there. Oh, <laughs> we were talking about somebody else. We're okay. Okay. <laughs> so we're wrapping this one up. Great way to wrap it up. Uh, just an absolute pleasure to be here. And uh, let's go to Buffaloes. Let's go to Buffaloes. From the halls of assembly, you'll hear us scream and shout. Our love of Indiana is manic and devout. Everything I do, we discuss in unique manner. We won't be satisfied until we hang another banner. Us two goofy guys go by names of Ward and Eric. And as you probably know by now, we're Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics.